I mean, did you think that I was going to start with any other song? Seriously, guys. Uh, I mean, to be honest, this song was, just to, to, to bring it back a little bit, I mean, this song was one of the reasons why I decided on doing this podcast in the first place. Someone Saved My Life Tonight is so interwoven in this book that it's a character unto itself. More so than any other song in any Stephen King novel, I would say. So, yeah, of course I'm going to start off with Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Anyway, I'm going to get into that in more detail. But first, let me do my usual spiel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication... And this week, guys, this week, uh, this episode kicks off a three-episode examination on the final journey of our Cotet as King wraps up the story that he began when he was 19 years old. And the end begins here with 2003's The Wolves of the Kala, which is then followed by The Song of Susanna and ultimately The Dark Tower. When looking at them, you should treat these final three novels as a whole. Basically, they function as a trilogy capper to a decades-long adventure novel. With Stephen King's 1999 car crash, the path that we had been on swerved into a patch of woods that we hadn't known existed, and our route to the Dark Tower became a lot stranger than we had anticipated. Now, I'm going to be honest, guys. I'm having a little difficulty with this one. I knew this was a big moment for me. In the spring of 2014, when I sat down and I thought about the possibility of making a podcast about Stephen King, I thought about the challenges and the excitement that would come from such an endeavor. And note that the challenges and that from which I would derive excitement are not, by nature, mutually exclusive. Knowing I would have an opportunity to say every thought I've ever had about it was one of those driving factors. But I'd say that the biggest factor was re-examining the Dark Tower series, placing each of the installments into the context of a complete vision, a vision that King begins to wrap up with the Wolves of the Kala. A large part of me was excited to reread Wolves because, as I've insinuated in other reviews, my feelings on the final three books and the series that had taken up so much of my life was mixed. But even though I might have mixed feelings about the ending of the series, and I'm going to get to that in due time, I can't deny the insane levels of excitement that I had felt when it was announced in the early 2000s that Stephen King was going to publish not one, not two, but the three final Dark Tower books back to back 
to back. For someone that was waiting since the conclusion of 1997's The Wizard in Glass to get my next installment, this was an incredible surprise. And on top of that, 1999 saw an event which put the ending of the Dark Tower series into question. And that, of course, is the real-life car accident in which Stephen King was run down while walking, resulting with injuries so severe he did die for a second. When I heard about the car crash, I immediately worried for the well-being of an author who'd meant so much to me. Stephen King was never, never just a remote literary icon. He personalized each and every book and gave it to us through the relationships that he had built with us. He didn't just publish books. He told us stories. And there's a difference. So my reaction was not unlike the reactions of the hundreds of thousands of constant readers out there whose friend, one we've never met, yes, but someone that I think we could all call a friend, was in grave danger. And that thought, I'm sure for many of us, I'll, I'll just speak to me here, that thought was immediately followed by a very selfish thought. And that thought was, he's not going to finish the tower. Now, I, I, I don't want to talk in absolutes here, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one to think about that. I mean, King even refers to it himself. He mentions how fans responded with cries that, the tower is falling. And with this, this intersection between a real-life event and the concern for the conclusion of a fictional series begins to blend. King's near-death experience caused his readers to worry that the tower would fall. I'm going to say that again. King's near-death experience caused his readers to worry that the tower would fall. Not that he wouldn't finish the tower, but his real-life near-death experience caused all of us to worry that the tower that we have dreamed about for so long would fall. Our concern for an author and our concern for his intellectual property were interchangeable. So it should come as no surprise that the two begin to bleed together in the pages of this book. Now hold on. <clears throat> Before I get any further, uh, just so everyone knows, from here on out, um, there are not going to be any more bonus episodes for the Dark Tower reviews. With my reviews of The Gunslinger and The Drawing of the Three, The Wastelands, The Wizard in Glass, The Talisman, The Eyes of the Dragon, The Stand, Insomnia, It, Hearts in Atlantis, Black House, Everything's Eventual, I published bonus episodes that explored those works in the greater context of the Dark Tower so I could get into spoilers for fans that wanted more. But now we are entering the clearing at the end of our path, and because King wrote The Wolves of the Kala, The Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower in one fell swoop, I'm treating these three final books as a complete unit. So in short, I'm putting all of my thoughts on The Dark Tower within these reviews. I'm not holding back for bonus reviews. This is it, guys. If you are listening to this, I'm going to spoil the events of the end of The Dark Tower series. If you have not finished The Dark Tower series, then I'm sorry, guys, but you're going to have to do without the Stephen King cast for the next three or so weeks. But hey, it gives you enough time to go to town on the books if you haven't finished The Dark Tower. So again, in this review, 
I just want to put it out there. I'm spoiling the events of Song of Susanna and the Dark Tower. Just be warned. Okay, so getting back to what I was saying, I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, in 1999, Stephen King, he was hit by a van. And as you all know, if you're still listening, um, I haven't been warned off by, by that spoiler alert. Um, if so, if you're still listening, this accident occurs within the pages of this series in a pivotal scene within the pages of the Dark Tower Book 7, The Dark Tower. Now, I'm going to get into that in much more detail during my review of The Dark Tower, but I'll say right here and now that the author's decision to include himself in the narrative was a controversial one and one that was off-putting to a number of readers, myself included. But let me explain that a little. Remember that I was an ardent Stephen King and Dark Tower fan. I had devoured The Gunslinger, The Drawing of the Three, and The Wastelands back-to-back, and waited like everybody else for Wizard and Glass. By the time that came out, I was an armchair Stephen King expert, a teenage professor of his multiverse. In fact, I saw his connections better than he saw his connections. No one wanted to get to the conclusion of this series more than I did. And with books like Insomnia and Black House and Everything's Eventual, even though I wasn't getting my fix of Midworld, I was getting my fix of the Dark Tower mythology. And like I said during my review of Black House, at the time, I believed when, it, when everything was said and done with the conclusion of the Dark Tower, I believed that Black House was the last book of the Dark Tower series that remained on the path that had begun with the Gunslinger, a path that revolved around the Gunslinger having to reach the Tower as his primary objective. With the Wolves of the Kala, that changes. It becomes less about having to reach the Tower and more about saving Stephen King. If you hate that, hold on. Hold on. I hated it too. But in the years since I last put down the Dark Tower Book 7, the Dark Tower, I've rethought that. And I'm going to work myself through these thoughts over the next three weeks. But still, you got to say, it's a controversial decision to say the least. I mean, what if J.K. Rowling showed up at Hogwarts? What if George R.R. Martin comes flying in on a dragon in the final books of A Song in Ice and Fire? What if Sam and Frodo reach Mordor and discovered that J.R.R. Tolkien was Sauron all along? I mean, can you imagine how off-putting these events would be? In the pages of these epics, the author is completely unwelcome. However, Stephen King is not J.K. Rowling. He's not George R.R. Martin, and he's not J.R.R. Tolkien. First of all, these authors haven't grown alongside their readership the way that King has with his audience. Like I said, he didn't publish books. He told us stories. There's an intimacy there due to the relationship that he's built with his audience. And this isn't to say that Rowling or Martin haven't built relationships with their fan bases, because they certainly have. But with something as simple as King's term of affection for us, us constant readers, he has spoken to us and with us for decades. And within the pages of the Dark Tower, within the very first book, he established that there are other worlds than these. King hasn't been playing with one Earth or even two, but a multiverse of parallel worlds. It is within the very nature of the series to explore the multiple worlds, so why shouldn't our world be included? And then there's what I mentioned earlier. When King was almost killed, we all immediately worried about the Tower. So when Stephen King goes ahead and includes himself within the pages of the Dark Tower, yeah, it was off-putting at first, but now it makes perfect sense. 
For an author who has had such a personal relationship with his writing and his audience, why shouldn't he be included in its final pages? As I mentioned in my second part of my two-part review of The Gunslinger, when King re-released The Gunslinger in 2003 and Allie goes insane because of the number 19, I stated I, that I started to have a sinking feeling because of what King's introduction on the power of 19 had meant for him personally. So when she goes insane and the number 19 had a part of it, I immediately worried that she just realized that she was just a character in a book written by an author by the name of Stephen King. This fear was compounded during the pages of Wolves of the Kala, when Jake discovers Charlie the Choo Choo is now written by Richard Bachman, another reference to Stephen King. Or, I'm sorry, it's not Richard Bachman, it's Claudia Bachman, right? Claudia Inez Bachman. Claudia Inez Y. Bachman. However, just like I finished saying, this inclusion is not unwarranted, and now it makes perfect sense. If anything, it makes the series more ambitious, makes our existence more grand, knowing that we live um, in a world that is part of a much larger one that is held together by a magical tower. And this, of course, makes our world so much weirder. So any issues that I have with Stephen King being in the Dark Tower are long gone. It doesn't make these books less real. It makes our world more real. It makes our world more fantastic than it actually is. Also, in the pages of Four Past Midnight, specifically in the introduction, King refers to the power of the white. For the first time, he's not just writing about the power of the white in relationship to his characters, but instead is referring to the power of the white in relationship to himself. In essence, in a throwaway moment like that, he's linking himself to his works in a way that he hadn't done before. Also, when you think of creations coming to life in both The Dark Half and Secret Window, Secret Garden, these are all examples of the creator and the creation coming face to face. So King showing up is not a concept that comes out of the blue. And as Kurt Vonnegut fans will tell you, it's not even a new concept within the literary world. Just ask Kilgore Trout. So that's the metatextual piece that I wanted to get out of the way. I'll definitely touch upon it more as I get into the final three books. But there's even more to talk about before I get to that. Let's just talk about the heart of this novel. Let's talk about Father Callahan. In the years leading up to the publication of this book, King had suggested that we'd see Father Callahan again. And I'm telling you, something about this character just fits with what King has built with the Dark Tower saga. If you've listened to my review of Salem's Lot, you'll know that I explored Father Callahan as an avatar for Stephen King in the sense that this was his first character that we see in a Stephen King novel fighting and losing a battle to dependency. His lack of faith costs him dearly, but as we've seen here in Wolves of the Kala, his story is not over and his future is not sealed. Salvation is not something beyond his reach, despite what we might have seen in the concluding pages of Salem's Lot. His death in the Dark Tower is one of the most triumphant moments that I've ever experienced in any medium. It's a high-water mark of not just this series, but all of Stephen King's writing. And the road to that moment begins here, and his journey is accompanied by his own theme song, the one that kicked off today's episode, Elton John's Someone Save My Life Tonight. Like I said, this song was one of the reasons I decided to go ahead with the Stephen King cast in the first place because it was so firmly entrenched in the narrative that it became a character in of itself. 
So when I thought of what these episodes would look like, I knew it would have to be a part of it. It helped shape the structure of the Stephen King cast and what it would sound like. And I could not wait to get to this moment to help make this book come even more alive than it already is. And this book is alive, guys. I mean, think about it. The Priest from Salem's Lot, Dimensional Hopping Amish Priests, The Magnificent Seven, Doctor Doom, Lightsabers, and an Evil C-3PO. The novel is insane with imagery and ideas. If we didn't know that Stephen King was stone-cold sober, it'd be easy to think that he was tripping on acid the entire time he was writing this. With the concepts presented in this novel, he continues the bleeding of realities that we've seen before, beginning with Hey Jude in the pages of The Gunslinger, and followed with Shardik the Bear, the ZZ Top war drums in the bowels of Lud, Emerald City in the Wizarding Glass. Except now the realities appear to be bleeding together at a crazier rate, no doubt because we're getting even closer to the tower. But what's interesting is how these realities are bleeding together. It isn't just that we're getting tastes of Marvel Comics and Star Wars. The realities of Star Wars and Marvel Comics are intermingling here and rewriting history as it had been known all along. I don't know if the Wolves of the Kala had ever looked like anything different. I mean the characters of the Wolves of the Kala. But as the beams fall and reality loosens and mixes with each other, it changes what has always been. It's not as if the beams break and all of a sudden Doctor Doom wielding a lightsaber shows up. The beams break and as a, re as a result, Doctor Doom werewolves with lightsabers have always been there. Now that is a small but hugely significant change of thought. That is insane. Also, this acknowledges that a galaxy far, far away and the house of ideas are just as real as the world you and I live in. And how can you not love that? I think that when I first read this, I interpreted this as King saying that Midworld was just a fictional world. Which it is, I know, but it doesn't feel that way. It never felt that way. And by including himself, I thought that it was highlighting the real over the fictional. But like I said, that's not the case. It's not saying that anything is fictional. It's saying that everything is real. And that's kind of why I love King's inclusion now. Alright guys, um, I'm almost up to, to 20 minutes. I haven't even begun. It's going to be one of the long ones. So I've been rambling for a while um, and I, I, probably, I probably should get to it. So you know the drill. I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. After escaping the alternate Topeka and the evil wizard Randall Flagg, Roland's Cotet travels to the farming village of Calabrin Sturges, where they meet the townsfolk, as well as Father Callahan, who was originally introduced in Salem's Lot. He and the townsfolk request the Cotet's assistance in battling against the wolves of the Thunderclap, who come once a generation to take one child from each pair of the town's twins. After a few months of being away, the children are then returned root mentally handicapped and destined to grow enormous in a grow in enormous size and die young the wolves are due to come in about a month's time father callahan also tells the gunslingers his remarkable story of how he left maine following his battle with the vampire kurt barlow in the pages of salem's lot since that encounter he has gained the ability to identify type 3 vampires with a blue aura after some time he begins killing those minor vampires as he finds them However, this makes him a wanted man amongst the low men, and so Callahan must go into exile. 
Eventually, he is lured into a trap and dies, allowing him to enter Midworld in 1983, much as Jake did when killed in The Gunslinger. He appears near the Kala with an evil magic ball called Black 13, and is found by the Manai people in a place called the Doorway Cave. Not only do Roland of Gilead and his Kotet have to protect the Kala Fokin from the wolves, they must also protect a single red rose that grows in a vacant lot on 2nd Avenue and 46th Street in Midtown Manhattan of 1977. If destroyed, then the tower, which is the rose in another form, will fall. In order to get back to New York to prevent this, they must use the Sinister Black 13. To add to that, Roland and Jake have noticed bizarre changes in Susanna's behavior which are linked to the event recounted in The Wastelands when Susanna coupled with the demon in the Stone Circle. Roland informs Eddie that Susanna has been impregnated by the demon, and though he fears for her safety, he remains surprisingly calm. They promise to keep the fact that they know a secret from Susanna, but later Susanna reveals the Katet she herself has come to grips with it, and knowledge of a second personality living in Su Susanna named Mia, daughter of Nun, is shared. Jake finds out that his new friend Benny Sleitman's father is a traitor by following him to a military outpost between the Kala and the Thunderclap known as the Dogen. Jake tells Roland, who shows mercy by not killing Sleitman, instead leaving him alive for his son and Jake's sake. The wolves attack, using weapons resembling the snitches found in J.K. Rowling's The Harry Potter series, which are actually stamped Harry Potter model, and lightsabers found in George Lucas's Star Wars, and are revealed to be robots to have Doctor Doom-like visages. Or visages? They look like Doctor Doom. The gunslingers, along with some help from the plate-throwing women in the college, defeat the wolves all the while with the children safely hidden in a rice patch nearby. Mia takes over the body of Susanna and flees to the doorway cave where she uses Black 13 to transport herself to New York. Analysis. Prologue. Root. For the first time in a Dark Tower entry, it does not begin with our main characters. Instead, King tries to sorry, King takes the time to establish Calabrin Sturges, which will serve as the midworld backdrop for the duration of this novel. He begins to parse out the ideas and the characters, hinting at Callahan, referred to as the old fella who gives out crucifixes, to Tion and Tia, who is Root, a term for slow, and Andy, the C3PO-ish robot. Andy, it turns out, is made by North Central Positronics and Lemurk Industries, the same companies responsible for Shardik the Bear from the Wastelands. Andy comes with news that the Wolves of the Kala will be riding out from the Thunderclap and arrive in town in one month. What are the Wolves? Will we see the Thunderclap, the dreaded location teased to us from Roland's vision in the Grapefruit and Wizard in Glass? And what of the Manai, who live on the edge of town? What role will they play? These characters who were last referenced in Wizard in Glass and are known to travel between worlds. I mentioned how the novel doesn't open with the Ka-Tet, and it shouldn't because it allows King to present the problem first and the hero second. It allows the gunslingers to swoop in like avenging cowboys or US marshals to take down the outlaws threatening the town. It allows King to reintroduce the characters through the eyes of an appreciative and frightened town who is forced to surrender one half of every pair of twins to the wolves, who will return the twins, except the pairs will come back root. What the wolves do is a mystery, one the reader will need to continue to read to keep on going. 
Constructing this way reinforces his efforts since the very beginning of the series, especially with the recreation of Roland's Cotet. Now that they are gunslingers, it's important for us to see them as such for the very first time, not as characters, but as myth-made life. At the town meeting, King Wick whips up the drama with talk of rebellion against the wolves, who aren't human, according to one of the townsfolk, the mystery of the Manai folk who have come, and during the long debate, a lone figure in a long black coat and a scar upon his forehead enters the building. Upon first reading, I thought I knew who it was, and I couldn't wait to spend more time with this character. But just how he enters, it's just such a cool moment. King knows he's got a secret weapon here. Meanwhile, the debate rages on, and it's thrilling. The choice is simple. They can either continue to do what they've always done, surrender their children to the wolves, or they can fight. There is strong opposition from some of the ranchers, and we get some sense of world-building. The wolves themselves are terrible fearsome, Telford went on, moving smoothly from one campfire story to the next. They look summit-like men, and yet they are not men, but something bigger and far more awful. And those they serve in the far thunderclap are more terrible by far. Vampires, I've heard. Men with the heads of birds and animals, mayhap. Broken helm, undead ronin, warriors of the scarlet eye. So far, King is continuing to lay down the dread of the thunderclap introduced in the previous Dark Tower book, The Wizard in Glass. Aside from the buildup of the thunderclap, and let's all take a moment to celebrate the badassery of that name, can't we? King starts to tease reveals that will not only bear fruit in the conclusion of this novel, but point to the direction of the series' end. And that's the Sneetches. At this point in publication, Harry Potter had become a phenomenon. Phenomenon? Phenomenon? Phenomenon. Phenom At this point in publication, Harry Potter had become a phenomenon. At this point in publication, Harry Potter had become a phenomenon. A, a phenomenon. At this point in publication, Harry Potter had become a phenomenon. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I don't know why I had such difficulty uh, getting that one out. But anyway, Harry Potter phenomenon. The finale to that series is less than three years away, so at this point, Harry Potter was firmly entrenched in our culture, a modern classic that continues to grow to this day. So when King wrote the Go of Golden Balls named Sneetches, everyone and their grandmother could tell you that sounded very similar to the golden snitch of the Harry Potter lore. Again, with every breaking beam, realities swirl into each other, so there's no reason, there's absolutely no reason why King shouldn't pay homage to J.K. Rowland's modern classic as he had with C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, L. Frank Baum, Sir Thomas Mallory, T.H. White, George Lucas, Jack Kirby, Sergio Leone, and more. And then, guys, oh, and then, then King decides that it's time. He's teased the old fella from the very first few pages. We've seen him stroll into the meeting. But after 28 years, King has decided that the time has come to meet again Father Donald Callahan. Stop that yellow talk, Telford. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Shocked gasps greeted this chilly pronouncement. There were cracking backs and creaking necks as men turned to see who had spoken. Slowly, then, as if to give them exactly what they wanted, the white-haired latecomer in the long black coat 
and turned around collar rose slowly from the bench at the very back of the room. The scar on his forehead, it was in the shape of a cross, was bright in the light of the kerosene lamps. It was the old fella. Telford recovered himself with relative speed, but when he spoke, Tian thought he still looked shot. Beg pardon, Perry Callahan, but I have the feather. To hell with your feather! To hell with your heathen feather and to hell with your cowardly counsel, Perry Callahan said. He walked down the center aisle, stepping with the grim gait of arthritis. He wasn't as old as the Mani Elder, nor nearly as old as Tian's Grand Perry, who claimed to be the oldest person not only here but in Kala Lockwood to the south. And yet he somehow seemed older than both, older than the ages. Some of this no doubt had to do with the haunted eyes that looked out at the world from below the scar on his forehead. Zalia claimed it had been self-inflicted. More, it had to do with the sound of him. Although he had been here enough years to build his strange man-Jesus church and convert half the Kala to his way of spiritual thinking, not even a stranger would have been fooled into believing Pierre Callahan was from here. His alienness was in his flat and nasal speech and in the often obscure slang he used, street jive, he called it. He had undoubtedly come from one of those other worlds the man I were always babbling about, although he never spoke of it, and Calibrin Sturgis was now his home. He had the sort of dry and unquestionable authority that made it difficult to dispute his right to speak with or without the feather. Younger than Tien's grandpere he might be, but Pierre Callahan was still the old fella. Now, without naming him, King teases the scar on his forehead from penance of a terrible sin, of the burn on his hand, the fact that everyone suspects that he's from another world. And the prologue concludes with Callahan invoking the belief of Arthur Eld, encouraging the men to stand behind the oncoming gunslingers. Name drops Jerusalem's lot for any reader who might be in doubt, and teases the thing under the boards, whatever that might be. Less than 30 pages in, we have our setting, Colibrin Sturges. We have our conflict to rise against the wolves who will come for their children. Our main character, Father Callahan. Our mystery, what is under the floorboards. If this were a movie... I could very easily seeing this take place before the credits, with the music rising as Callahan delivers his speech, reaching its crescendo with his statement to stand and be true, and then, boom! Cut to the title of the movie and the credits. Drums thundering, big pronouncement, the dark tower colon fade out, Wolves of the Kala. Part 1, Todash. Chapter 1, The Face on the Water. The novel reintroduces us to Eddie and the Cotet, but more importantly, the strange rules of reality that have begun to take hold of the universe. There were days Eddie could have sworn were 40 hours long, some of them followed by nights, like the one on which Roland had taken them to Mehis, that seemed even longer. Then there would come an afternoon when it seemed you could almost see darkness bloom as night rushed over the horizon to meet you. Eddie wondered if time had gotten lost. What's great about this, along with the residents of Calabrin Sturgis claim that Gilead fell over a thousand years ago, the shifting time plays into the reading experience for the reader. 
When Eddie recounts the events of the wasteland, noting that it took place weeks before, for the reader it had been 10 years. And with time falling apart, the events of the wastelands can take place both 10 years and mere weeks before. It's where King first knowingly refers to the number 19. Technically, the first appearance was in the re-release of the gunslinger that had come out the spring before, but this is the first time in the linear narrative in which he drops that number on the audience, labeled by the quartet as the mystery number. 19 starts showing up everywhere they look, and the content doesn't know exactly what to make of it. If you listen to my review of The Gunslinger, you might remember that I discussed my concerns with the re-release of The Gunslinger, and the inclusion of this number, and the fact that it appeared right away in the pages of Wolves with a Kala only served to strengthen that concern. I'm going to speak about 19 in much greater detail throughout the podcast, but I wanted to point it out right here as it marks the first time it starts to play a significant role in the series. Later, when the Kotet make their way through a forest that prompts Eddie to tell the story of Hansel and Gretel, Roland and his New Yorkers have a conversation about the preference of stories of the people of Earth that speaks to the nature of what King is doing with the Dark Tower saga. Such stories are called fairy tales, Roland mused. Yeah, Eddie replied. There were no fairies in this one, though. No, Eddie agreed. It's more like a category name than anything else. In our world, you got your mystery and your suspense stories, your science fiction stories, your westerns, your fairy tales. Get it? Yes, Roland said. Do people in your world always want only one story flavor at a time? Only one taste in their mouths? I guess that's close enough, Susanna said. Does no one eat stew? Roland asked. Sometimes at supper, I guess, Eddie said. But when it comes to entertainment, we do tend to stick with one flavor at a time and don't let any one thing touch another on your plate. Although it sounds kind of boring when you put it that way. I I just, I really like that, guys. I mean, because that's King saying, listen, why can't we just have a stew and really enjoy it? By the way, I want to put it out there. Um, Just recently, I've been thinking more and more about this. Um, And I've put it on on Twitter, um, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, But... I don't know if I, I didn't I didn't originate this idea, but it certainly solidified itself uh, when I was finishing up Hannibal. But man, I just gotta say that I think that Mads Mikkelsen needs to play Roland if there's ever a movie. You know, I know that that's everyone has a different Roland in mind. I know that a lot of people, um, I don't know the guy's name, but the guy from Hell on Wheels, a lot of people have envisioned Hell on Wheels, and a lot of me, a lot of a lot of people, myself included, for for many many years, um, with the, the the popularity of Lord of the Rings. A lot of us had had visualized Vigo uh, in the role, and certainly he'd be great. I've also heard um, Josh Brolin and Liam Neeson. I also think that Liam Neeson would make a badass uh, Father Callahan, by the way. Um, but when when you if you watch Hannibal and you watch what Mads Mikkelsen can do, and there's a a, mo- a new movie that came out, uh, Salvation, where he's a gunfighter. And if you just, all you have to do is type in Mads Mikkelsen Salvation and that first image, you're like, oh my God, that's not, that's a, that's a poster for the gunslinger. He looks like the gunslinger because this guy can, he can play warm. He can lure you in, but there's such a stone cold menace in his eyes and his accent, you know, is sometimes just, you you don't know what he's saying, which I think would really work to, to highlight the, the foreign land of, of Midworld and really make uh, Gilead seem, seem so far away. 
So I, I, I was really, really envisioning this um, as I was finishing up the, the Dark Tower Book 7. And uh, I just reread uh, Wind Through the Keyhole, and I was just picturing it the entire time. So Mads Mikkelsen is the official choice of the Stephen King cast for Roland Deschain, and I honestly hope that it happens. Anyway, uh, Jake then finds muffin balls and reveals to the quartet that he has spotted men watching them. Roland explains that he's known about it for days and has been waiting for his quartet to discover them on their own. Roland begins to piece the overall picture together, if not the details, that they aren't dangerous, and the fact that they're being followed points to the idea that they might need help. Meanwhile, Roland teases his quartet and us that the muffin balls they've eaten might cause strange dreams, which sends Jake, Oi, and Eddie on a shared dream experience back in New York. And King has fun with this, building it up and setting it off with Eddie. Game on, Eddie thought. Game on. Chapter 2. New York Groove. King revisits the sensation of doubling that he'd begun in the Wastelands, when in the dream quest they encountered Jake from the Wastelands in the moments before he found the Rose. Except the dreamers realize that there is a great darkness behind everything, which shows the fragility of reality. As they follow 1977 Jake, Jake starts to realize that there are differences in the world, and the first being the inclusion of Stephen King's name in the front of the Manhattan Restaurant of the Mind. This, along with the repetition of the number 19, really made me think that King was somehow going to be a factor into this series. And then when the author of Charlie the Choo Choo turned out not to be Beryl Evans as it had been previously, it now turns out it was written by Claudia Inez Bachman, who constant readers would immediately know to be the late Richard Bachman's wife. With the immediacy and the discomfort that initially came with King beginning to include himself long gone, it's a blast to watch present-day Eddie and Jake try to make sense of what's occurring in this scene. And when Eddie watches Enrico Balazar pull up to the restaurant of the mind, Eddie's story story from the drawing of the three and Jake's story from the wastelands tie together in ways I never would have thought. It's revealed that Calvin Tower engaged in a transaction regarding the vacant lot Jake is about to visit, which makes his involvement to the entire series so much more critical than anyone would have suspected when reading The Wastelands in 1991. As Jake, Eddie, and Oi begin to fade back into the darkness that comes accompanied by the chiming bells, Eddie starts to think about the things that might live in the darkness that fills the dead spaces of the universe, which we will learn is called Todash Space. As they retreat into the darkness, they spot the things that lurk within the space, and as Eddie floats through it, he floats alone, away from every known concept, loved one, universe, or world. This is a great time to introduce the Todash space, as it represents the state of its existence should the tower fall. Chapter 3, Mia. Here we go, guys. Here's where things start to get interesting. King dropped a bomb on us that Susanna has now developed a fourth personality, the mysterious Mia. Right away, Mia is walking, which differentiates herself from Detta, Odetta, and Susanna, even if it's just a dream. Also, and I should know this, I believe that this is the first actual confirmation that she's pregnant. Of course, I mean, we had known by the end of the Wastelands, but I think that this is the first time it's addressed by the author in a forward way. 
It's clear right away that something is wrong with Mia. King places her in a surreal setting um, of a great banquet hall uh, and it's glamoured to appear to be in the past. And when she finds herself at the feast, the juicy food juxtaposed with the squealing things below the table is disturbing, as is Mia's gluttony and sloppiness. As it turns out, this is simply a mental projection that Mia is providing for Susanna as her body is moved through the woods to hunt. During Roland's perspective of this, we get to know just a little bit of the other great teacher he had as a youth. We all know Court, but we'd never had a scene with Venet, a character that had been referenced for years. And this is the closest that we get to one um, on page 78 to 79. Roland and his mates had learned about Todash from Venet, the tutor of Court in the long ago when they had been young. They had been a quintet to begin with, Roland, Elaine, Cuthbert, Jamie, and Wallace, Benet's son. Wallace, fiercely intelligent but ever sickly, had died of the falling sickness, sometime called King's Evil. Then they had been four, and under the umbrella of a true quartet. Benet had known it as well, and knowing that was surely part of his sorrow. Court taught them to navigate by the sun and stars. Vinay showed them the compass and quadrant and sextant and taught them the mathematics was necessary to use them. Court taught them to fight. With history, logic problems, and tutorials on what he called the universal truths, Vinay taught them how they would sometimes avoid having to do so. Court taught them to kill if they had to. Vinay, with his limp and his sweet but distracted smile, taught them that violence worsened problems far more often than it solved them. He called it the hollow chamber, where all true sounds became distorted by echoes. He taught them physics, what physics there were. He taught them chemistry, what chemistry was left. He taught them to finish such sentences as, that tree is like a, and when I'm running I feel as happy as a, and we couldn't help laughing because... Roland hated these exercises, but Vinay wouldn't let him slip away from them. Your imagination is a poor thing, Roland, the tutor told him once. Roland might have been 11 at the time. I will not let you feed it short rations and make it poorer still. He had taught them the seven dials of magic, refusing to say if he believed in any of them, and Roland thought it was tangential to one of those lessons that Vinay had mentioned Todash. Or perhaps he capitalized it. Perhaps it was Todash. Roland didn't know for sure. He knew that Vinay had spoken of the Manai sect, people who were far travelers. And hadn't he also mentioned the wizard's rainbow? This brief scene is a nice contrast to court. Reminds the audience of the wizard's rainbow and raises the question without having to say it about Black 13. Through Roland's perspective, we see what happens to Eddie, Jake, and Oi's bodies as they go Todash. They're caught between two worlds, half faded in this one and fully in the next. And we see Roland's perspective of Susanna. Whereas Mia projected an image of a great feast, in reality, Susanna is slithering through a bog. It's very creepy. And King makes the setting come alive with owls and leeches and an ancient skeleton. It's here where Roland's questions to the reader for the first time the possibility that the baby might not be human. And the fact that King is finally addressing this long, dormant plot point is very exciting. It's also during this chapter where King begins to tease Roland's hip. It has begun to pain him 
which is a new development for the gunslinger. And one that I took first as a sign of just age and his quest uh, catching up. It was only later did we learn that his hip is beginning to hurt because of the extensive injuries suffered by Stephen King during his car crash. Chapter 4, Palaver. The gang discusses Eddie and Jake's Todash experience, trying to make sense of the changes to the world that Jake had left not that long ago. During the recounting of the events, it's the first time the characters reference Richard Sayer, the high-ranking Cantoy that will appear throughout this novel and the next as one of the Crimson King's executives. During the conversation, they revisit plot points from the various novels, specifically the rose growing in the vacant lot, and realize that the only way the Sombra Corporation can get its hands on the rose is to legally own the ground that it grows from. If you question it, it doesn't make sense. It's just one of those magical rules that the universe has to abide by. And with those rules firmly established, we're able to embark on the next quest, which is to save the rose. It's also during this conversation where King, through his characters, addresses a possible critique of the series. And that's the interconnectivity of, of it all. With the realization that Enrico Balazar and Calvin Towers' lives are entangled in each other's, Eddie discusses a critique lobbed against Charles Dickens for the interconnectivity of the characters in his works. And so we accept that a minor character like Calvin Tower much has a much larger role to play in the story, that he is from a long line of guardians of the Rose. And Susanna is the one that problem solves their way out of this when she nonchalantly says that they'll just buy the lot from Calvin Tower. Even if they don't need to tap into Odetta's funds, they'll know he'll still sell it to them because, as Roland says, he's been waiting for the white. The white, for the uninitiated readers, is the force of good that has permeated a number of Stephen King's novels, including The Talisman, Needful Things, Insomnia, Black House, and The Green Mile. Roland, Eddie, and Susanna devise a plan to find two doorways, one that will take them to 1964 after Susanna had been pulled into the beach to collect her money, then through another door in 1977 to drop a lap full of cash to Calvin Tower in order to buy the property outright. It's only Roland who speaks as the bearer of bad news because, like he tells them, it's not as if there are these types of doors that are just easy to come by. The characters debate the ease or difficulty with which they'll discover the doors when they are interrupted by a man in black, a redemptive man in black, who is clearly not from Midworld and reveals that he's from originally a little town in Maine that you might have heard of, one called Jerusalem's Lot. Callahan introduces himself to the Kotet, and the relationship they form is immediate and strong. Callahan and Roland dance around the unspoken truth that the people of Colibrin Sturges need help, and Eddie realizes that he isn't just some lost soul in a strange land, but an actual gunslinger. You've made a mistake here, Pops, Eddie thought. Perfectly understandable, but a mistake all the same. We're not the Calvary. We're not the Posse. We're not gunslingers. We're just three lost souls from the Big Apple who... But no. No. Eddie had known who they were since the river crossing when the old people had knelt in the street to Roland. Hell, he'd known since the woods, what he still thought of as Chardique's woods, where Roland had taught them to aim with the eye, shoot with the mind, kill with the heart. Not three, not four, one. That Roland should finish them so, complete them so, was horrible. 
He was filled with poison and had kissed them with his poisoned lips. He had made them gunslingers. And had Eddie really thought that there was no work left for the line of Arthur Eld in this mostly empty and husked-out world? That they would simply be allowed to toddle along the path of the beam until they got to Roland's dark tower and fixed what was wrong there? Well, guess again. Callahan fills the quartet with a rough summary of the problem in Calabrin Sturges and begins to speak about the object that could help them go toe-dash. A tear spilled down Callahan's right cheek, then another. He wiped them away absently. I've never dared handle it, but I've seen it. I've felt its power. Christ the man, Jesus, help me. I have black 13 under the floorboards of my church. It's come alive. Do you understand me? He looked at them with his wet eyes. It's come alive. The chapter ends with the realization that Charlie the Choo Choo, the publication that Jake had carried over from his world, is having the Marty McFly syndrome from Back to the Future and is starting to fade. Chapter 5, Overholster. We soon learn that Susanna's pregnancy is even stranger than expected. It's still not a subject that anyone is speaking about, and of all the members of the quartet, Roland is the only one that knows for sure that she's pregnant, and that includes Susanna. Because while she might be feeling nauseous and exhibiting signs of pregnancy, she's still having her period. This, along with the fact that she has no memories of gorging on frogs and rats in a swamp, reveal that our worst fears are probably going to come true. The quartet meet the representatives of Colibrin Sturges, and King doesn't waste time making us dislike Wayne Overholster, the farmer who has the most to lose and the one most opposed to fighting off the wolves from the Thunderclap. Chapter 6, The Way of the Eld. We've met the, res the residents of Colibrin Sturges. We've clearly met our quartet. We've been allowed to see the Kotet through the eyes of the residents of Calabrin Sturgis, and we are able to see Calabrin Sturgis through the eyes of our Kotet. What struck Eddie with the most force was how goddamn civilized this part of the world was. It made Lud, with its warring greys and pubes, look like the cannibal isles in a boy's sea story. These people had roads, law enforcement, and a system of government that made Eddie think of a New England town meeting. There was a town gathering hall and a feather which seemed to be some sort of authority symbol. If you wanted to call a meeting, you had to send the feather around. If enough people touched it when it came to their place, there was a meeting. If they didn't, there wasn't. Two people were sent to carry the feather, and their count was trusted without question. Eddie doubted if it would work in New York, but for a place like this, it seemed like a fine way to run things. There were at least 70 other Kalas, stretching in a mild arc north and south of Kalabrin Sturges. Kalabrin Lockwood to the south and Kala Amity to the north were also farms and ranches. They also had to endure the periodic depredations of the wolves. Farther south were Kalabrin Browse and Kala Staffel, containing vast tracts of ranch land, and Jafford said they suffered the wolves as well, at least he thought so. Farther north, Kala Sin... Pender and Kala Sentre, which were farms and sheep. Farms of good size, Tian said, but they're smaller as you go north, Kennet, until you're in the lands where the snow falls, so I'm told. I've never seen it myself, and wonderful cheese is made. Those of the north wear wooden shoes, or so tis said, Zalia told Eddie, looking a little wistful. She herself wore scuffed clod hoppers, clod hoppers called shore boots. The people of the Kalas traveled little, but the roads were where... 
were there if they wanted to travel, and trade was brisk. In addition to them, there was the Y, sometimes called the Big River. This ran south of Colobrin Sturgis all the way to the South Seas, or so twas said. There were mining collas and manufacturing collas, where things were made by steam press and even I by electricity, and even one collar devoted to nothing but pleasure, gambling and wild amusing rides, and... But here Tian, who had been talking, felt Zalia's eyes on him and went back to the pot for more beans, and a conciliatory dish of his wife's slaw. So, Eddie said, and drew a curve in the dirt, these are the borderlands, the collas, an arc that goes north and south for... How far, Zalia? Tis men's business, so it is, she said. Then, seeing her own man was still at the embering fire, inspecting the pots, she leaned forward a bit towards Eddie. Do you speak in miles or wheels? A little bit of both, but I'm better with miles. She nodded. Mayhap two thousand miles, so. She pointed north, and twice that, so, to the south. She remained that way, pointing in opposite directions, then dropped her arms, clasped her hands in her lap, and resumed her former demure pose. And these towns, these collas, stretch the whole way? So we're told, if it please ya, and the traders do come and go, northwest of here, the big river splits in two. We call the east branch Devartet Y, the little Y, you might say. Of course, we see more river travel from the north, for the river flows north to south, do you see? I do, and the east? She looked down. Thunderclap, she said in a voice Eddie could barely hear. None go there. Why? It's dark there, she said, still not looking up for her lap. Then she raised an arm. This time she pointed in the direction from which Roland and his friends had come, back toward Midworld. There, she said, the world is ending, or so we're told. And there, she pointed east, and now raised her face to Eddie's. There, in the thunderclap, it's already ended. In the middle are we, who only want to go our way in peace. And do you think it will happen? No. And Eddie saw she was crying. Eddie and Andy, our robot friend, then have a conversation, and to be honest, it's hard to trust Andy, as Blaine and Shardik had both tried to kill our gunslingers. Consequence of Sound, uh, a website that you should all head on over to, by the way, pegged Stephen Merchant as the voice of this character. And if a movie ever happens, Stephen Merchant needs to be Andy. It's such a great choice. Eddie takes the opportunity to ask the questions he should be asking. What are the wolves? Why do they come? And how does Andy know beforehand? Great questions, but it's not going to be easy for Eddie as Andy isn't going to give up the info that easy, asking instead for a password. So it's like King knows that we aren't going to trust this character, so he doesn't waste time preparing a betrayal twist, instead choosing to build him full of mystery. And of course, quick-witted witters, quick readers will be able to figure out the issue with his password restriction. If Andy is a robot created by the old people, and the wolves had only begun appearing for less than 200 years, then who created the password restriction? It's something that is immediately thought of by Roland, who chooses not to ask this question at this time. When discussing the effects of becoming Root, there's a tragedy to the older ones who are taken, who is King Wright's. These were somehow the worst, for they seemed to come back with some vague understanding of what had been done to them, what had been stolen from them. 
These had a tendency to cry a great deal or to simply creep off by themselves and peer into the east like lost things, as if they might see their poor brains out there, circling like birds in the dark sky. King then describes the horror of what happens to the root when their bones start rapidly growing, growing so fast you can hear the crackling as they expand and the agony the root are forced to endure. They then speak of the wolves and the thunderclap, and for fans of the Dark Tower mythology and the things that go bump in the night, then this is for you. The thunderclap stands like a wall of darkness to the east, where once you could see mountains, you can now only see a wall of blackness. The wolves themselves are described as being gray, wearing masks made of iron that rot in the sun, green cloaks, black boots, and gray horses. And when it comes to the thunderclap again, King builds it up as a place of the most vile Stephen Kingish creatures, including vampires, which Callahan is able to speak about. After their conversation, the representatives of Colibrin Sturges are still not satisfied with Roland and company, so it's up to the Quartet to provide a demonstration, which is awesome. Jake speaks to the Gunslinger's Creed, and Roland throws plates into the air, which explode from Jake's guns simultaneously. Roland throws more plates, which are immediately blown out of the sky by Susanna and Eddie. It's a great scene that shows just how badass this crew is. When one scoffs at their demonstration, stating that shooting plates is different than shooting a wolf, Roland shuts him down by saying, For you, maybe, but not for us. Oh, boom, mic drop. Chapter 7, Todash. Here, at last, we finally get a glimpse of the Battle of Jericho Hill when Roland goes Todash. I'm going to talk more about this scene later in the podcast, but for right now, can I just say that there isn't a picture more disappointing in any of the Dark Tower books than Bernie Wrightson's illustration of the Battle of Jericho Hill? I hate saying that. I mean, the scene, the brief scene that we get is so loaded with detail. Easter Island-like stone faces that jut from the ground, the dwindled band of gunslingers fleeing from the thousand-plus army of blue-faced warriors, the bullet-ridden Cuthbert clutching the horn of Eld, he and Roland's final embrace. And what we get is a picture of Roland holding Cuthbert upright as they stand on a sheer rock wall, which is baffling. It's the Battle of Jericho Hill, not the Battle of Jericho Cliff. Anyway, like I said, I'm going to get into the Battle of Jericho Hill in much more detail later in the episode. Uh, What happens next is that Roland travels to New York City where he's met by an ecstatic Susanna who, in Todash reality, has her legs back. They encounter the rest of their quartet, and King manages to slip in a little levity in the constant life-or-death situation for the gunslingers as Roland or Susanna pokes fun at Eddie and Jake, believing that they're teasing her about the eventuality that Ronald Reagan will become president of the United States. They arrive at the vacant lot, home of the Rose, another incarnation of the Dark Tower itself, but there's a change in the environment, one which insinuates the constantly shifting reality of the fallen beams and perhaps even the corpse of the turtle which was found by the losers in the final pages of It. If the turtle is indeed dead at the point when the Kotet re-reached the vacant lot, it makes sense that the poem about the turtle is no longer spray-painted there. Instead, someone, probably someone with the initials RF, has spray-painted scenes of future events. 
Oh, Susanna Mio, divided girl of mine, done parked her rig in the Dixie Pig in the year of 99. This, of course, is foreshadowed to the events that will take place over books 6 and 7, which I'll get to much later in my reviews of, uh, well, books 6 and 7. While the characters stand around the rose, Susanna sees the wandering spirits of the vagrant dead who pass through Todash space lost and confused. It's a great moment where King is able to slip in a little ghostly horror into the cosmic adventure. Part 2, Telling Tales, Chapter 1, The Pavilion. The characters finally make it to Calabrin Sturgis with a wonderful description of the view from above and the lands beyond. As they make their way, King, through Eddie, sows the seeds of the tone that will grip the remainder of the book. Eddie never forgot their first encounter with those of the Kala. That was one memory always within easy reach. Because everything that happened had been a surprise, he supposed. And when everything's a surprise, experience takes on a dreamlike quality. He remembered the way the torches changed when the speaking was done, their strange, varied light. He remembered Oi's unexpected salute to the crowd, the upturned faces and his suffocating panic and his anger at Roland. Susanna hoisting herself onto the piano bench in what the locals called the musica. Oh yeah, that memory always. You bet. But even more vivid than this memory of his beloved was that of the gunslinger, of Roland dancing. But before any of those things came, but before any of those things came the ride down the Kala's high street and his sense of foreboding, his premonition of bad days on the way. The bad days don't necessarily come in this book, but in the final two installments of the Dark Tower series. I'll touch upon the foreshadowing to the tragic events yet to come, but for now, just let me point out that it pervades this book thoroughly. It is to the reader what number 19 is to the characters. You just see it everywhere. From Roland's boot heel sounding like a coffin nail being driven home, to Eddie's growing unease, Susanna's uncertainty about her future, Roland's nagging hip, the darkness behind the Todash quests, and how King dips each of Jake's scenes with the death of his own childhood. Death, for all, is all around. The Cotet's introduction to the college shouldn't be as much fun as it is, but it is. From the setting sun and the torch glow upon the faces of our gunslingers to their introductions one by one, culminating with the pre-planned bow that Roland had taught Oi in order to win over the hearts of the farmers, it's a captivating read. It's during this scene when Eddie discovers one aspect of his role in the Contet, Roland of Gilead's mouthpiece, as he's the one to speak on behalf of the Contet to the assembled 700 townsfolk. King then gives us a party, a lighthearted moment, one of the last, one of the last before the heartbreak to come. It concludes with Roland's dance for the town, which is just a, it's a nice moment for us. And it's a nice moment for our hero. Chapter 2, Dry Twist. Roland awakens from another dream of Jericho Hill. And again, King teases the importance of the horn as if he's reminding himself what he must do the next time around. I'll talk more about that later, of course. And we get to more detail about his hip pain, which we'll learn is because of his relationship with Stephen King. But for now, Roland thinks it's only arthritis. 
which is terrifying for fear of what it would mean when it traveled to his hands. The scene is both wonderful and sad at the same time. Wonderful that our characters can rest to go together under the safety and warmth of a house, eat breakfast together in a kitchen. But sad, of course, because it's not meant to last. It's during the following morning when Roland tells Eddie of Susanna's secret. There are so many variables. There's no way to determine what's going to happen next. And when Eddie makes Roland promise they'll protect her, both men can't help but think of Jake falling beneath the mountains. Chapter 3, The Priest's Tale. Here we go, guys! Aside from Jack Sawyer, who recently reappeared in Black House, this marks the first time we look at a character decades after we first met him in another Stephen King entry. But before we get to Life After the Lot, King fleshes in Callahan in more detail, specifically the origin of his drinking. In this section, King is able to utilize his own experience with recovery to highlight Callahan's drinking, and the insights that the sober mind produces is very much taken from his own life. But it isn't just a case of the writer unloading his own personal life into his book, but a case where the alcoholism of the character services the story. The details of Callahan's early days of drinking lead directly into the events of Salem's Lot when King writes, He had set up, shop, bag, and baggage in the pleasant little town of Jerusalem's Lot, Maine. There, he had finally met real evil, looked into its face, and flinched. Callahan then recounts the events of Salem's Lot, and though he's only providing a summary of a book we've all read, still creates goosebumps knowing that King is tying his works together right before our eyes. And the more he talks about Mark Petrie, it only heightens the similarities between he and Jake, something that I had discussed in my review of Salem's Lot. We even get to revisit a revisit to the scene in Mark's kitchen where Barlow breaks Callahan's faith. We witness Callahan's first steps to redemption in the homeless shelter, where he first discovers um, that when Barlow made him unclean, he also gave him the ability to spot other vampires, which stand out to him with colored auras, which means, I suppose, that Callahan bumped up a notch, just a little bit on the Tower of, Exi of Existence first seen in Insomnia. It's with Callahan's story where King allows himself to write about the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. He's never written about this before. So when he looked at Callahan's timeline, it gave him the perfect opportunity to weave in the AIDS epidemic into the tale of his vampire hunter. Because of his vampire hunting, the low men start chasing him. Yes, those low men from the story Low Men in Yellow Coats from Hearts in Atlantis. And during this recount of his life, Callahan drops the bombshell on the quartet that the low men are soldiers of the Crimson King. Because the low men, the regulators, are after Callahan, he has to flee New York and takes the hidden highways to do so. Chapter 4, The Priest's Tale Continued, Hidden Highways. By this point, Roland, Eddie, and Susanna know that Callahan is a member of their quartet. Callahan begins to make his journey across the different Americas, which is incredibly, incredibly invocative of the talisman. The following scenes depict Callahan fitting in between shifting parallel Americas. Each day he discovers subtle changes that weren't present the day before. Callahan pauses his story to take Roland to Black 13. 
it's a great way to show the power this thing has. We've seen how powerful the grapefruit was, but it pales in comparison to Black 13. Chapter 5, The Tale of Grey Dick. Here, when speaking with the eyes and hearts, Margaret tells Roland the story of Lady Oriza, and in doing so, introduces the plates. It's a nice scene, as most of the callous scenes are, full of character and world building, and we get to see Jake just be able to be a boy, jumping into hay piles without a care in the world. After the Lady Oriza scene, which again speaks to the Canterbury Tales, Margaret shows them the, dead, the deadliness of the plates in action. It's more than just world building. Margaret, revealed to be the daughter of Hinchik the Manai, hints of a backstory that we never see, one we don't need to see. But knowing that life is being lived and has lived outside of our Khatad is just good storytelling. And the tension that comes after she throws and she's filled with anger from it, knowing what this means. Roland is taking this seriously and threatens to kill the farmhands if they tell anyone. Chapter 6, Grand Payer's Tale Eddie then hears the story of the wolf that was killed, again in a scene that invokes the Canterbury Tales. And I, I, I guess I haven't talked about this much, and maybe I'll get to it later. I don't remember what I have in my notes. But um, when King envisioned the, the original gunslinger, he, he partially thought of the Canterbury Tales. Um, Geoffrey Chaucer's uh, great uh, epic that has been read, not an epic, but just a, a series of, of tales. It's an epic poem that um, English majors throughout the world will, will recognize, and we have seen aspects of this throughout the Dark Tower. Um, every time a character sits down to tell a story, it invokes this, this classic. But Grand Pierre's tale is a harrowing scene that provides us the best glimpse yet of the wolves and sets out expectations for when they show up later in the novel. We see their light sticks and sneeches in action, and the death of the one they bring down should point the reader in the right direction. The radar dish on top of a robot's head was something that we've seen before with Shardik, after all. Chapter 7, Nocturne, Hunger. Mia, again, takes control of Susanna's body to feed the baby, this time spotted by Jake. And Mia knows she'll have to go to the Dixie Pig for the baby. The question the reader should be asking is, What? What is the Dixie Pig? And why does Mia need to go there? And who is sending these messages? We cut to first Eddie, who is trying to come to grips with what's happening to Susanna, then to Jake, who awakens from camping with Benny, revealing that he'd been following Mia in a dream. Jake is immediately filled with sadness as he understands that Roland and Eddie know about Mia and the secrets signal undoing of the quartet. as his decision to hold off on telling Roland about Andy and Benny's father's clandestine meeting. Chapter 8, Took Store, The Unfounded Door. Jake and Roland have a wonderful scene together where they discuss Susanna's plight and the breaking of the quartet. What's so good about it is that if you take all the fantastical concepts away from it, it's just about a boy growing disappointed in his father and the father recognizing this. It's, signal it's signaling Jake's aging that he is no longer, not that he ever really was, a wide-eyed boy. Roland asks Zalia Jeffords if she asks for aid and succor. And now it's official. The Kotet will help the Kala. And Roland makes plans for Jake and Susanna to learn to throw the plates. 
Roland and Henchik, the Man-Eye leader, then head to the doorway cave. And unsurprisingly, the cave is named this way because there's a door in the cave. Duh. It's a great way to connect this installment to Drawing of the Three, where the doors were first introduced. Chapter 9. The Priest's Tale Concluded. Callahan returns to New York to visit a friend who has been badly beaten and tortured. He discovers that's because they were looking for Callahan, torturing Rowan for information. Callahan is jumped by the Hitler brothers, New York sociopaths employed by the low men who carve his now signature cross upon his forehead. But thankfully he's saved by Calvin Tower and Aaron Deepno before they can do worse. The convergence of the characters show that King is showing the importance of the once thought off one sorry, once thought one off characters from the wastelands and revealing how Ka is roping all of the players of the white together. Callahan eventually winds up in Detroit working at another shelter when his boss receives a letter from Richard Sayre at the Sombra Corporation inviting the two of them and another employee to a meeting. After all the many worlds, after being hunted by the low men and associates, the agents of the Crimson King have found a way to trap Father Callahan. It's the boardroom meeting from hell. Callahan realizes what's happened just before the doors close, locking him in a conference room with a number of low men and vampires and the one in charge of this operation, Sayre, with the red circle on his forehead. He threatens to have the vampires drink from him and pass along the HIV virus, once again tainting him, and Callahan makes one final choice to end things on his terms, and though his actions are suicidal, you can't help but root for him on page 456. Callahan doesn't hesitate. If he hesitates, he will be lost. It's not AIDS he's afraid of, but of letting them put their filthy lips on him in the first place, to kiss him as the one was kissing Lupe Delgado in the alley. They don't get to win. After all the way he's come, after all the jobs, all the jail cells, after finally getting sober in Kansas, they don't get to win. He doesn't try to reason with them. There is no palaver. He just sprints right down the side of the conference room's extravagant mahogany table. The man in the yellow shirt, suddenly alarmed, shouts, Get him! Get him! Hands slap at his jacket, specially bought at Grand River Menswear for this auspicious occasion, but slip off. He has time to think. The window won't break. It's made of some rough glass, anti-suicide glass, and it won't break. And he has just enough time to call on God for the first time since Barlow forced him to take of his poisoned blood. Help me! Please help me! Father Callahan cries and runs shoulder-first into the window. One more hand slaps at his head, tries to tangle itself in his hair, and then it is gone. The window shatters all around him, and suddenly he is standing in cold air, surrounded by flurries of snow. He looks down between black shoes, which were also specially purchased for this auspicious occasion, and he sees Michigan Avenue, with cars like toys and people like ants. He has a sense of them. Sayer and the low men and the vampires who were supposed to infect him and take him out of the game forever, clustered at the broken window, staring with disbelief. He thinks, This does take me out of it forever, doesn't it? And he thinks, with the wonder of a child, This is the last thought I'll ever have. This is goodbye.
then he is fallen. He doesn't die, though, obviously, and instead wakens in a familiar location, the way station, where Jake had emerged into Roland's world in The Gunslinger. Not only does King revisit this memorable location, but he also provides a scene with the fan-favorite wild card, the walking dude himself. The man in black, the ageless stranger, wizard to some, demon to others, the one that goes sometimes by Martin, sometimes by Walter, sometimes, and most popularly, by Flag. Flag, as Walter, reveals that Callahan will function as a ticking time bomb just waiting for the moment when Roland and his company can enter his vicinity and explode from the Black 13. After appearing in five novels, Wolves being the sixth, King isn't afraid of adding a little dimension to his mischievous devil character. Callahan, frightened, backing away, calls him cruel. Walter's eyes widen, and for a moment, he looks deeply hurt. This may be absurd, but Callahan is looking into the man's deep eyes and feels sure the emotion is nonetheless genuine, and assured he robs him any last hope that this might all be a dream of a final brilliant interval before the true death. In dreams, his at least, the bad guys, the scary guys, never have complex emotions. I am what Ka and the king in the tower have made me. We all are. We're caught. He's thrust through the door into the Kala, and that's how Callahan arrived where we met him. And it concludes with the four members of our Kotet and Susan admitting, Susanna admitting that she believes that something is wrong. Part 3. The Wolves. Chapter 1. Secrets. Roland has a conversation with Father Callahan about the nature of Susanna's child. They have a conversation about abortion, which Roland requests aid from Rosalita. The thing is, though, we've already seen Roland abort a demon baby in the page of the Gunslinger. He did it himself, so him unable to do it again is out of character with what we've seen from him before. The debate about abortion between he and Callahan is a great way to cause tension in the story between these two characters. Sparks fly as they stick by their positions, but push the other into agreements. Roland agrees not to force the issue. Callahan ag agrees to keep an eye on Susanna. Callahan tells Roland if he hears that Roland has suggested abortion to Susanna, he'll turn the town against him. And Roland makes his own threat, saying that if Eddie finds out, he'll kill Callahan. Susanna, despite the threat of Mia and the baby, demonstrate that she's more than capable of mastering the plates. They then discuss their plans. Jake wants to take a gun when he camps out with Benny just, raised, just in case his hunch about Andy is correct, and Eddie realizes that he needs to get to New York as soon as possible in order to purchase the lot from Calvin Tower, and he figured out that they don't need to travel to 1964 to get Susanna's money. He realizes that Tower is waiting for them to take over the responsibility from him. Chapter 2. The Dogen, Part 1. Eddie and Roland remove Black 13 from its resting place in the church and head to the doorway cave, discussing Roland's plan. Part of the conversation is revealing the fact that his plan to lead the wolves to the mine is just a fake-out, knowing that there's a rat in the Kala feeding the wolves the information. Furthermore, Roland states that he doesn't believe there's anything supernatural about the wolves. 
The problem with this conversation is that Roland already knows there's nothing supernatural about the wolves, and Eddie was the one that told him as much. They both know the wolves are robots. Secondly, King presents the question of the rat is a mystery when it isn't really. We know it's Benny Sleitman's father. Yes, the other characters don't know that, but the way that Roland and Eddie discuss it, listing off the possible suspects, seems like a waste of time. Anyway, at the cave, King clearly dismisses a plot point that will not come up. By having Eddie ask Roland if he's worried that Eddie will try to score once he's in New York, Roland confidently tells him, no, no, he's not. And with that, neither should we. With the end in sight of both this novel and the series, with so many loose threads to stitch together, King is telling us that, that this is not a conflict that we are going to see. Eddie heads through the door and once there, even though we're heading into a previously seen time period, it's new territory. Who knows what kind of adventure Eddie will have. This is his first solo outing as a gunslinger, and what an outing. Traveling using the most evil talisman in existence to 1970s New York to possibly re-kill the same mobsters he killed the first time a decade later? It's pretty awesome. And it doesn't take long for things to get juicy. On page 519, we really start to see Eddie as a gunslinger and what that is like once he gets into um, Kelvin Tower's bookstore and sees exactly what is happening to the man. He felt the first pulse of deep anger in the middle of his head. It was dull, but if past experience was any indicator, the pulses were apt to come faster and harder, growing sharper as they did. Eventually, they would blot out conscious thought and God help anyone who wandered within range of Roland's gun when that happened. He had once asked Roland if this happened to him and Roland had replied, it happens to all of us. When Eddie had shaken his head and responded that he wasn't like Roland, not him, not Suze, not Jake, the gunslinger had said nothing. With Eddie and New York, sorry, with Eddie in New York and less than 200 pages to go, King is itching for action, and he doesn't disappoint. Eddie sneaks up on the gangsters who are strong-arming Calvin Tower. And on page 522 to 523, um, he continues the thought that I had just uh, finished reading. Movement at last, snagged Jack Andalini's eye. He looked beyond his partner's left shoulder and saw a young man with hazel eyes looking out of a deeply tanned face. The man was holding what looked like the world's oldest, biggest prop revolver. Had to be a prop. Who the fucker? Jack began. Before he could get any further, Eddie Dean's face lit up with happiness and good cheer, a look that vaulted him way past handsome and into the land of beauty. George, he cried. It was the tone of one greeting his oldest, fondest friend after a long absence. George Biondi! Man, you still got the biggest beak on this side of the Hudson. Good to see you, man. There's a certain hardwiring in the human animal that makes us respond to strangers who call us by name. When the summoning call is affectionate, we seem almost compelled to respond in kind. In spite of the situation they were in back here, George Big Nose Beyond they turned, with the beginning of a grin towards the voice that had hailed him with such cheerful familiarity. That grin was in fact still blooming when Eddie struck him savagely with the butt of Roland's gun. Andalini's eyes were sharp but he saw little more than a blur as the butt came down three times. The first blow between Biondi's eyes, the second above his right eye, the third into the hollow of his right temple. 
The first two blows provoked hollow thudding sounds. The last one yielded a soft, sickening smack. Biondi went down like a sack of mail, eyes rolling up to show the whites, lips puckering in a restless way that made him look like a baby who wanted to nurse. The jar tumbled out of his relaxed hand, hit the cement floor, shattered. The smell of gasoline was suddenly much stronger, rich and cloying. Eddie gave Biondi's partner no time to react. While Big Nose was still twitching on the floor in the spilled gas and broken glass, Eddie was on Andalini, forcing him backward. He continues, and it's pretty awesome. Uh, for Calvin Tower, who had begun life as Calvin Torin, there was no immediate sense of relief, no, thank God I'm saved, kind of feeling. His first thought was, they're bad, this new one is worse. In the dim light of the storage room, the newcomer seeped to merge with his own leaping shadow and became an apparition ten feet tall, one with burning eyeballs starting from their sockets and a mouth pulled down to reveal jaws lined with glaring white teeth that almost looked like fangs. In one hand was a pistol that appeared to be the size of a blunderbuss, the kind of weapon referred to in 17th century tales of adventure as a machine. He grabbed Andalini by the top of his shirt and lapel of his sports coat and threw him against the wall. King addresses what could be a consistency issue on these books. Now, if Eddie kills Jack, history suggests that Eddie will then suffer from the time travel sickness as Jake and Roland had. But we're past that. Instead, Eddie realizes that they've gone too far into their own narrative and something about this world is different. At this point, anything can happen. It's a bit of a cheat to rewrite the rules this late in the game, but if the universe is rewriting itself, then that's our easy way out. Now, I, I've just read a few pages here, but seriously, uh, Eddie might be this novel's MVP because of this entire scene, because it's just awesome. Eddie leaned down. Jack stared up at him, fascinated by the bulging eyes, hazel irises, bloodshot whites, and the savagely grinning mouth, which was now the distance of a kiss from his own. Mr. Calvin Tower has come under the protection of people more powerful and more ruthless than you could ever imagine, Jack. People who make Il Roche look like a hippie flower child at Woodstock. You have to convince him that he has nothing to gain by continuing to harass Calvin Tower and everything to lose. I can't. As for you, know that the mark of Gilead is on this man. If you ever touch him again, if you ever step foot in this shop again, I'll come to Brooklyn and kill your wife and children. Then I'll find your mother and father and I'll kill them. Then I'll kill your mother's sisters and your father's brothers. Then I'll kill your grandparents if they're still alive. You, I'll save for last. Do you believe me? Jack Andalini went on staring into the face above him, the bloodshot eyes, the grinning, snarling mouth, but now with mounting horror. The fact was, he did believe. And whoever he was... He knew a great deal about Balazar and about this current deal. About the current deal, he might know more than Andalini knew himself. There's more of us, Eddie said, and we're all about the same thing. Protecting, he almost said protecting the Rose, protecting Calvin Tower. We'll be watching this place. We'll be watching Tower. We'll be watching Tower's friends, guys like Deepno. Eddie saw Andalini's eyes flicker with surprise at that, and he was satisfied. Anyone who comes here and even raises his voice to tower, will kill their whole families and then them last. That goes for George, for Simi Jetro, Trix Positano, and for your brother Claudio too. 
Andalini's eyes widened at each name, then winced momentarily shut at the name of his own brother. Eddie thought that that maybe he'd made his point. Whether or not Andalini could convince Balasar was another question. But in a way, it doesn't even matter, he thought coldly. Once Towers sold us the lot, it really doesn't matter what they do to him, does it? How do you know so much? Andalini asked. It doesn't matter. Just pass on the message. Tell Balazar to tell his friends at Sombra that the lot is no longer for sale. Not to them it isn't. And tell them that Tower is now under the protection of the folk from Gilead who carry hard calibers. Hard? I mean folk more dangerous than any Balazar has ever dealt with before, Eddie said. Including the people from the Sombra Corporation. Tell him that if he persists, there'll be enough corpses in Brooklyn to fill Grand Army Plaza. And many of them will be women and children. Convince him. I... Man, I'll try. Eddie stood up, then backed up. Curled in the puddles of gasoline and strews of broken glass, George Bondy was beginning to stir and mutter deep in his throat. Eddie gestured to Jack with the barrel of Roland's pistol, telling him to get up. You better try hard. Aside from showing that Eddie is a thorough badass, this is important because this is the first time the Kotet manages to strike at the enemy. The first four novels were about survival and immediate need. Roland needed to get to the man in black, then needed to draw the three. The Kotet needed to draw Jake, then save Jake, then save themselves from Blaine. For once, they are proactive agents here. And though they're outnumbered, it's clear that they're just as powerful, if not more so than the Crimson King as an entire army. In Book 7, this will be proven to be the case. Tower provides Eddie with a note dated to in the 1800s that has upon it Roland's name. Because Eddie is able to reveal the name, Tower begins to believe him more. It raises the question though, where did this note come from? We know that the Torrens have been the keepers of the Rose for centuries, but is there more to it? Did Calvin's ancestors originate in Midworld? Are they from Keystone Earth and travel to Midworld at any point? Are there lost adventures of the Torren clan? The chapter concludes with the dissolution of one mystery as Eddie and Roland both confirm that Ben Slightman cannot be trusted. Roland indicates that sending Jake to the Slightmans was a test, understanding that if Jake is true to the White, he'll have to give over Benny's father, even if it costs him a friendship. This is to be Jake's sacrifice. Benny is to Jake what David was to Roland. Chapter 3, The Dogen, Part 2 just as Eddie took his first solo adventure as a gunslinger, now it's Jake's turn. He and Oi sneak out in the middle of the moonlit night to investigate what Andy and Ben's father might have been up to. Oi, following Slightman's scent, leads Jake to the Dogen, and along the way, they encounter moving cacti, which is pretty fun. Jake's adventure provides assistance to the rest of his quartet, and he discovers inside the Dogen a bank of camera monitors whose screens show various locations throughout the Kala, including Callahan's rectory. Here he thinks of the second coming by Yates, which King had also included in the stand through the perspective of a general who spent most of his time staring to a row of monitors just like this one. And then Jake sees Andy and Ben Sr. coming towards the Dogen. It's a great moment. And Jake, though a gunslinger, is still a kid and is rightfully frightened. But he doesn't lose his cool, which is important. 
He hides in another room and overhears their conversation, which includes a conference with Finley Otego, the weasel-headed chief of security of Aljul Ciento, a location we'll visit in Book 7, that has seismic repercussions on this series. The bad news is that our villains know of Roland's plan. The good news is that Jake knows they know, which allows Roland to plan accordingly. Chapter 4, The Pied Piper the Cotet make their plans, which leads Callahan to venturing through the Doorway Cave in 1977 New York. While Callahan is in New York, Roland peruses Calvin Tower's bookshelf and discovers a book that horrifies him. While King doesn't come right out and say it, he describes a book with a church on the cover and a red sun going down in the background, and when he looks through it, he recognizes the names. Of course he'd be horrified. He's holding in his hands Salem's Lot, the same edition that I own, and its presence suggests that Callahan is fiction, and if Callahan is fiction, aren't they all? Now this drove me nuts at first. I hated this prospect for years, but like I've said before, to me it doesn't matter if they're fiction. It just means that King is transcribing their stories. If anything, it makes them more real. Chapter 5, The Meeting of the Falcon. It's now come to the moment of truth, when Roland must address the Kala. King builds the scene perfectly, once again framing it through the perspective of T. and Jeffords, who has sat out hundreds of pages, which is fine. His role was to introduce the gunslingers, and once they arrived, there was no need for his perspective. But it works to have him be the perspective in this scene as we get to see how grim the gunslingers appear, how distant Roland's dance seems to be. As Jeffords begins his speech, he's interrupted by Took, who was put in his place by Overholster, who has come full circle now on the side of the Cotet. And King knows that he has to make this moment work. It's dark, lightning flashing in the darkness over the thunderclap, and Roland takes the stage. He begins his master plan. The first is to lie to the Kala telling them that the wolves are zombie slaves to their vampire overlords and stresses to the masses that the chest is the only vulnerable point of their bodies. This, of course, is a lie because at this point he knows they're robots with the dishes on their heads. He then targets Sleitman and ropes him into the plan, knowing that whatever he tells them will be reported back to the wolves. Chapter 6, Before the Storm Callahan travels through the door to East Stoneham, where Calvin Tower has fled. He leaves a note and manages to return through the door just in time to prevent Eddie from committing suicide now that he's under the spell of Black 13. And then we cut to Susanna, who is in the midst of having contractions. We're about 80 pages from the end, so anything is up for grabs here on out. Eddie then lures Andy in, telling him they'll need help transporting guns, which of course is another lie. When Andy comes at the agreed-upon time, Eddie calls him out for his treachery and all pretense is over. The confrontation is quick, with Eddie having the upper hand, shooting out his eyes, and locking him in an outhouse until he's able to use the password 1999 to command him to shut down. Basically, he's, committing, he's commanding Andy to commit suicide, and Andy knows it, and it's such a great wrinkle in this scene. Chapter 7, The Wolves here, on the way to the children drop-off, Sleitman confesses to Roland, and while on the surface it might be a conversation between the traitor and the gunslinger, in truth, it's really all about fathers and their sons. Sleitman then refers to the Breakers, 
a term that we're hearing for the first time in a Dark Tower novel. The first time we heard it was in Hearts in Atlantis in the short story Low Men in Yellow Coats, in which we met a breaker by the name of Ted Brodigan, who we will meet again in the Dark Tower. And in Black House, co-written by Peter Straub, the entire novel hinged on the salvation of an incredibly important breaker. It turns out that the twins provide a psychic meal that the breakers need to eat. As they prepare to make their stand, Roland reveals to his band that the wolves are not zombies but robots with vulnerable radar dishes on their heads. But of course, the plan was working too accordingly. Something has to go wrong. First, one of the twins snaps an ankle and is almost vulnerable to being spotted by the wolves. Then Suzanne is about to give birth and has to make an agreement to Mia. The wolves come and truthfully, it's an underwhelming conclusion. Yeah, some of the Kala folk die, including Benny, which sucks for Jake, but other than that, the Kotet are more than a match for the wolves who don't present a threat at all. I mean, why should they? If Eddie and Susanna could face off against a giant bear with a radar dish on its head when they first entered Midworld, why shouldn't they be even more efficient now that they're fully-fledged gunslingers? King stages the scene to show the Kotet working together, taking turns shooting while the others reload, and Roland allows Jake to have his moment of fury, asking Eddie to hang back and let Jake unleash his wrath upon the wolves. Epilogue, The Doorway Cave The fight might be over, but the story is far from done. Remember, this is the first book in a trilogy, or the first chapter of an extremely long book. With Susanna's disappearance, King manages to create an, an incredible sense of tension and dread that was not present in the wolves' battle. While in the cave, whose doorway is now closed now that Mia had taken Black 13, Roland reveals the copy of Salem's Lot to the others, and for the first time, the characters in a Stephen King novel directly reference Stephen King with the knowledge that he will play a larger part in the story. Here is where King ends the story. One of the Kotet is missing, about to give birth to a monster. The very reality of their existence questioned. A bookseller hiding in Maine who holds a key to saving the tower and a magic door that won't open. But Roland is optimistic at their chances, and King ends it on an upbeat note rather than a downer. For fans reading in real time, we only had to wait six months to get the answers to the dangling mysteries presented to us at the end of Wolves of the Kala. But still, six months felt like six years, guys. Okay, um, before I get to final thoughts, um, I want to talk about Father Callahan. So the gunslinger is Roland's story. Drawing of the Three is Eddie's story. The Wasteland is Jake's story. Song of Susanna is all about Susanna. And Wolves of the Kala, it's all about Father Callahan. And should come as no surprise because he, he, he puts the Kala in Callahan. Look, one of the joys of this podcast has been getting to read Salem's Lot with a lot of scrutiny. And having devoted uh, an hour and a half to the analysis on that book, I not only reacquainted myself with that character, but got to know him better than I ever had before. I'm not sure if um, I had reread Salem's Lot after the, the Dark Tower first came out. I mean, the Dark Tower, Book 7 of the Dark Tower first came out, but reading it knowing Callahan's full character arc was an incredible experience. It's this novel where King begins to explore the idea that he and Roland are twinners, but on another level, I'd argue that he and Callahan are twinners as well. 
In my Salem's Lot review, I'd questioned whether or not Callahan's alcohol problem was the first sign that King was struggling on some level with alcohol himself. I made the argument, and this could be pure pop culture armchair psychology, that Callahan represented King himself and embodied the qualities in himself that he saw would lead to a life of dependency. If that's the case, it makes Callahan's reappearance in the final three novels of the saga all the more important because of the strength, resolve, and selflessness that characterize the fallen priest. If Roland represents one aspect of King, the one that could have and almost sacrificed everything for his fix as Roland does with his obsession of the tower, then Callahan represents the redemption of the author who was able to cast aside the temptations and found renewed purpose in life. On a less analytical aspect, Father Callahan's just awesome. There's kind of no other way to say it. I've spoken of it before, and I'll speak of it again in my review of The Dark Tower, but his blaze of glory moment in The Dixie Pig is one of the most triumphant scenes I've ever experienced in any medium. And it wouldn't be the case if we hadn't first seen his fall from grace in 1975 and his redemption in 2003. Alright guys, let's talk about Roland again. I've read before that King has had stated that he's had a difficult time with stepping back into Roland's cowboy boots. Now, if that's the case, you would never know with each installment and with every entry in the three in the dark in the dark to dark tower tower where he manages to enrich the character in ways that constantly surprise me. I mean, after decades of writing this character, you'd think it gets stale, but it's exactly the opposite. For instance, just look at how Susanna is able to pinpoint one quality of his when Eddie tells Roland the fairy tale of the candy house in the woods. That's because he doesn't listen all bug-eyed like a kid at bedtime, she said. That's just how you want him to listen, honey bunch. He listens like an anthropologist. Like an anthropologist trying to figure out some strange culture by their myths and legends. As we've seen with Wastelands and Wizards in Glass, Roland continues to thaw and flourish in the presence of his quartet. The distant, lonely wanderer from the first novel seems like a completely different character. But still, Roland remains a figure of myth, no matter how much we've come to know him. At one point, Roland states, I have wandered long because of changes in time, a softening of time, which I know you have all felt. I've quested after the Dark Tower for over a thousand years, sometimes skipping over whole generations the way a seabird may cruise from one wave top to the next, only wetting its feet in the foam. This is a character that exists outside of the restrictions of time. And what type of person exists across generations and thousands of years? A myth. During this novel... It expands upon what we've glimpsed in both Wastelands and Wizard in Glass in the sense that we see Roland as a diplomat. How he navigates his way through the interpersonal relationships with Colibrin Sturgis is as masterful as anything he has ever done with his guns, if not harder. King's insights into his character continue to be the most powerful of any character that he's ever written. As he does on page 229... The torches were orange. Roland stood in their light, gunless, and slipped him, slip, slim-hipped as a boy. For a moment, he only looked out over the silent watching faces, and Eddie felt Jake's hand, cold and small, creep into his own. There was no need for the boy to say what he was thinking, because Eddie was thinking it himself. Never had he seen a man who looked so lonely, so far from the run of human life with its fellowship and warmth. 
to see him here in this place of fiesta, for it was a fiesta, no matter how desperate the business that lay behind it might be, only underlined the truth of him. He was the last. There was no other. If Susanna, Eddie, Jake, and Oi were of his line, they were only a distant shoot, far from the trunk, afterthoughts almost. Roland, however, Roland. Hush, Eddie thought. You don't want to think about such things. Not tonight. Roland has grown since drawing his cotet into the world, and every step he takes is a test whether or not he will fully give himself over to the family, or whether he will continue to choose a more selfish approach. The test comes when he starts to devise a plan with the plates. Um... After Susanna has begun to practice and shows how skilled she is. And King writes, Yes, but I'll need to trust someone with the whole truth eventually. Who? Not Susanna, because Susanna was now two again and he didn't trust the other one. Not Eddie, because Eddie might let something crucial slip to Susanna and then Mia would know. Not Jake, because Jake had become fast friends with Benny Sleitman. He was on his own again, and this condition had never felt more lonely to him. In the end, after the battle with the wolves, King teases Roland's ultimate fate on page 686. The sickness was coming now, the feeling of uselessness. The sense that he would fight this battle or battles like it over and over for eternity. Losing a finger to the Lestropsides here, perhaps an eye to a clever old witch there. And after each battle, he would sense the Dark Tower a little farther away instead of a little closer. And all the time, the dry twist would work its way in towards his heart. Stop that, he told himself. It's nonsense, and you know it. But unfortunately, Roland... It's not nonsense, and we do know it. We do know that your future is comprised of endlessly fighting your way to the Dark Tower, never to truly reach the Dark Tower, unfortunately being able to reach the Dark Tower, and wishing every time that you did that you did not ever reach the Dark Tower. Okay, guys. Um, I want to talk about Susanna. Uh, so I said that this book is Father Callahan's book, but Father Callahan is not on the cover jacket. Susanna is, and it's because the publisher must have recognized the importance of this character in the pages of this novel. In so many ways, Susanna owns this novel, and this begins in chapter 3 when we are introduced to Mia, a word that means mother in high speech. Of course, why wouldn't this woman develop a new personality? The thought had never crossed my mind, so when it happened, it took the already unpredictable pregnancy plot point and made it even more unpredictable. When Roland follows her through the dream, he hears her talking to herself in multiple voices, and he thinks on page 75... And on and on, chitter and chatter, Roland heard Odetta's cultured voice and Detta's rough but colorful profanity. He heard Susanna's voice and many others as well. 
How many women in her head? How many personalities formed and half-formed? He watched her reach over the empty plates that weren't there and empty glasses also not there, eating directly from serving platters, chewing everything with the same hungry relish, her face gradually picking up the shine of grease, the bodice of her gown, which he did not see but sensed, darkening as she wiped her fingers there and there again, squeezing the cloth, making it against, matting it against her breasts. These motions were too clear to mistake. And at each stop before moving on, she would seize the empty air in front of her and throw a plate he could not see on either on the floor at her feet or across the table at a wall that must exist in her dream. Plus, when Wolves was published, we all knew the name of the next installment. And with a title like Song of Susanna, I was convinced that it meant that this character was going to die. This belief cast a pall over the novel, heightening the tension on every scene that she was in. For the duration of the novel, Eddie has had a bad feeling about the future with moments like the one that he has on page 353. He gazed up, her at, he gazed up at her seriously from the dust of the dooryard. He knew that however much she might love him, he would always love her more. And as always when the thought, when he thought these things, the premonition came that Ka was not their friend, that it would end badly between them. With the introduction of Mia, King presents his newest mystery. Who is this character? Is she a new personality or something else? If so, what is she and what role will she play in the novel? More than any other novel leading up to this one, Wolves of the Kala includes a number of passages through the perspective of Susanna, and it's about time. We continue to get insight on the other characters around her through her thoughts and opinions, which demonstrate her keen insight. It's Susanna's pregnancy that becomes the ultimate wild card in this novel. It's a secret to even herself, and when Roland tells Eddie, I'm sure there was a collective sigh as to how he would take the news, that his wife is pregnant with a monster. The pregnancy itself could not have come at a worse time. It brings fugue states to the character with a new, mysterious personality, and with the wolves 20-something days away and the rose a few weeks away from being snatched up by the Sombra Corporation, the pregnancy threatens to undo any plan they have have in motion. Also, one thing that I really like, I, I honestly feel that King dialed down the jive talk that was interwoven through Susanna's dialogue in previous novels. But I'll get to Susanna definitely more in uh, the next two analyses of Song of Susanna and The Dark Tower. Jake, guys, let's talk about Jake. It was so painful to reread this book knowing where Jake's fate ultimately lies. And King slips in moments of foreshadowing that could make it, that should make it painfully clear of Jake's ultimate demise. After the demonstration of their gunslinging abilities, King writes about Jake and his newfound friend Benny. They might still manage some sort of friendship, but what had just happened would change it in a fundamental way, turn it into something quite unlike the usual light-hearted kef the boys shared. Which was a shame, because when Jake wasn't being called upon to be a gunslinger, he was still only a child, close to the age Roland himself had been when the test of manhood had been thrust on him. And this leads to the next part, this very, very ominous part um, that just kind of screams at you when you know Jake's fate, King writes, but he would not be young much longer very likely, and it was a shame. 
King also makes the point to suggest that aspects of Elaine are present within Jake. For one, he has the touch. And when the Katet go Todash to the vacant lot, Roland is about to bring up the situation of Mia and Susanna when he hears the voice of Elaine tell him not to. Seconds later, Jake speaks up and offers to stay behind with Susanna. The one-two punch of Elaine and Jake both bring a thoughtful sensibility. And when you realize that Elaine dies under the guns of Roland, things do not bode well for Jake. Throughout this novel, there's an air of sadness when it comes to this character. It isn't just the knowledge that he's going to die, but the symbolic death of his childhood that he had to sacrifice in order to be a gunslinger. Like when he asks Roland if he can sleep over Benny Sleitman's house on page 204. The boy's cheeks flushed thin red. Well, I thought that it's if you guys were in town with the old fella and I was out in the country south of town, you can. Then we get two different pictures of the place. My dad says you don't see anything very well if you only look at it from one viewpoint. True enough, Roland said, and hoped his voice nor his face would give away any sorrow and regret he suddenly felt. Here was a boy who was now ashamed of being a boy. He had made a friend, and the friend had invited him to stay over, as friends sometimes do. Benny had undoubtedly promised that Jake could help him feed the animals, and perhaps shoot his bow, or his ba, if it shot bolts instead of arrows. There would be places Benny would want to share, secret places he might have gone to with his twin in other times. A platform in a tree, mayhap, or a fish pond in the reeds special to him, or a stretch of river bank where pirates of Eld were reputed to have buried gold and jewels. Such places as boys go. But a large part of Jake Chambers was now ashamed to want to do such things. This was the part that had been despoiled by the doorkeeper in Dutch Hill, by Gasher, by the TikTok man, and by Roland himself, of course. Were he to say no to Jake's request now, the boy would very likely never ask again, and would never resent him for it, which was even worse. Were he to say yes in the wrong way, with even the slightest trace of indulgence in his voice, for instance, the boy would change his mind. The boy. The gunslinger realized how much he wanted to be able to go on calling Jake that, and how short the time to do so was apt to be. He had a bad feeling about Calabrin Sturges. The entire narrative of their stay in the Kala only reinforces Jake's relationship with Roland that of father and son. When Roland sends Jake on his way, he even gives him some money to spend. It was smart of King to bounce Jake off others. It highlights the tragedy of the loss of his youth, and by reminding us of his youth, it makes his upcoming death so much worse. When you know the ending of the book and these characters, it's hard not to see it everywhere. Jake, having been on his own with Benny Sleitman, is able to pick up on the goings-on of the quartet with the touch and realizes that their quartet is breaking. Once they begin keeping secrets from each other, it allows the poison to get into their bloodstream. First, he's frustrated that Eddie and Roland know, but Susanna does not, and then he begins to contemplate the traitorous act of telling her without Roland's permission. And then he decides to refrain from telling Roland about Andy and Benny's dad, a sign of selflessness that helps to break apart their quartet. Sorry, selfishness. Ultimately, Roland had always been aware of Benny's father's treason, and Jake's placement at the ranch was a gunslinger's test. In the conversation with Eddie, Roland expresses sadness about this. 
knowing Jake will have to sacrifice the last remaining shreds of his childhood. But what I didn't catch the first time around was the hint that he'll lose so much more than that. Jake will do what he needs to do, Roland said. So will we all. But he's still just a boy, Roland. Don't you see that? He won't be for much longer, Roland said, and mounted up. He hoped that Eddie didn't see the momentary wince of pain that cramped his face when he swung his right leg over the saddle. But of course, Eddie did. Jake's childhood comes to a definitive end with the death of his friend Benny to reinforce the next phase of his life. An unfortunately short phase. Roland allows him to smoke his first cigarette. Now let's talk about Eddie. Remember that the drawing of the three was primarily the story of Eddie, and since then his role, though always important, has relegated him to the co-starring role. Wolves bumps him back to... Um, bumps him back up to the main event in order to show when juxtaposed against the Kala how much he's grown as a gunslinger. Just look at the scene during the town gathering when the townsfolk take turns peppering Eddie with questions and Telford steadily gnaws on Eddie's patience, finally asking who he really is. Eddie's response is fantastic. Eddie Dean in New York, I hope you're not questioning my honesty. I hope to Christ you're not doing that. It's an important novel for Eddie in which uh, it's the first one which he's required to perform as a gunslinger in full, as Roland's right-hand man, as a diplomat, and as a ruthless, terrifying killer. When we see him through Calvin Tower's eyes, it's hard to believe that he's the same person that we had met um, in the drawing of the three. And I've already read this, but I'll just read it one more time. In the dim light of the storage room, the newcomer seemed to merge with his own leaping shadow and become an apparition ten feet tall, one with burning eyeballs starting from their sockets and a mouth pulled down to reveal jaws lined with glaring white teeth that almost looked like fangs. And then Andy. I mean, we've already met enemy robots, so when introducing Andy, King ran the risk of becoming derivative, but Andy is a great addition to this mythos. Something about him invokes C-3PO, unsurprising as lightsabers also appear in this novel, and the idea that this is C-3PO, just an evil version, makes this book so much fun. Jake's trip to the Dogen reveals a different side of Andy. He drops his 3PO voice and indicates that he's constantly frustrated with the abuse from the Califolk. It's interesting. It doesn't give Andy motivation necessarily, but it does give him pathos. And when it's time for him to die, you can't help but feel a little bad for him. His agonized and terrified screams of being blind sound too human, and when Eddie commands him to shut down, he knows that he's being asked to commit suicide. All right, guys, let's talk about the Battle of Jericho Hill. Big moment, big moment for Roland. And this is a plot point that had been teased over the, uh, over, over the books. Um, and we get a very brief flashback to this, completely out of context. It'd be like if we got Susan burning without the story leading up to it. On one hand, it works this way because as we near the end of things, everything is falling apart, breaking into pieces even Roland's past. The scene itself, only a few pages long, it's a wonderful snapshot on the final moments of Roland at his best, even when he's at history's worst, before he became the obsessive tower junkie that would kill anything in his path. And this scene really helps to explain it. I mean, after all he's been through, 
He has to reach the tower, or everything that has led up to this moment has been in vain. Elaine's death, the fall of the gunslingers, Cubert's death, all of it. With the tease of the final chapter of the fall of Gilead, King also teases events yet to come. He'd already, in Wolves of the Kala, established a connection between Elaine and Jake, providing Jake with the touch. Should Jake have had the opportunity to grow up, I can imagine he would have become the observant and thoughtful gunslinger that Elaine had been. The fact that Elaine dies by the hands of Roland and Cuthbert does not bode well for Jake. And then there's the Horn of Eld, an object that symbolizes the bad choices that Roland will make as he heads for the tower. The Horn is the direct line to Arthur Eld, which is what Roland could be if he worked for it. By claiming the horn, he's embracing his past. He's respecting the wishes of the dead who have died for him rather than using their deaths as motivation for future bloodletting. A Roland that accepts the horn is theoretically a better balanced individual who has not forgotten the faces of those that have come before him. When Roland starts his quest over again in the concluding pages of the Dark Tower, the fact that he has his horn suggests that he's carrying on the mission of the Gunslingers and what they had stood for rather than what had occurred this time around, which was the man bending the mission of the gunslingers to justify his obsessions. The Horn of Eld speaks of acceptance, Ka, and Kef. Now guys, I think that you know how much I love Cuthbert. I think in the short time that we know him, he's a much better realized character than his reincarnation, Eddie Dean. King is lucky that this character came alive under his own and that the flashbacks in Wizard and Glass worked as well as they did to make the death of Cuthbert all good work as well as it does here. A character so believable that we accept the fact that he's wisecracking even up until the end. The relationship between these two is very much the friendship between Bill Denbro and Richie Tozier, by the way. So I'm going to read this, uh, this ending here. Um, it's going to take a while, but I think that's important because we've chronicled the, the early days of, of Roland, and it ends here at the Battle of Jericho Hill. And now they're at the top, and there's nowhere left to run. Behind them to the east is a shale crumbly drop to the salt, what 500 miles south of here is called the Clean Sea. To the west is the Hill of Stone Faces and Grissom's Screaming Advancing Men. Roland and his own men have killed hundreds, but there are still 2,000 left, and that's a conservative estimate. 2,000 men, their howling faces painted blue, some armed with guns and even a few with bolts, against a dozen. That's all that's left of them now, here at the top of Jericho Hill, under the burning sky. Jamie dead, Elaine dead under the guns of his best friends, solid, dependable Elaine, who could have ridden on to safety but chose not to. And Cuthbert has been shot. How many times? Five? Six? His shirt is soaked crimson to his skin. One side of his face has been drowned in blood. The eye on that side bulges sightlessly on his cheek. Yet he still has Roland's horn, the one which was blown by Arthur Eld, or so the stories did say. He will not give it back. For I blow it sweeter than you ever did, he tells Roland, laughing. You can have it again when I'm dead. Neglect not to pluck it up, Roland, for it's your property. Cuthbert Allgood, who had once ridden into the barony of Mehis with a rook's skull mounted on the pommel of his saddle, the lookout, he had called it, and talked to it just as though if it were alive, for such was his fancy, and sometimes he drove Roland half-mad with his foolishness, and here he is under the burning sun, staggering toward him with a smoking revolver in one hand and Eld's horn in the other, 
blood bolted and half blinded and dying, but still laughing. Ah, dear gods, laughing and laughing. Roland, he cries. We've been betrayed. We're outnumbered. Our backs are to the sea. We've got them right where we want them. Shall we charge? And Roland understands he is right. If their quest for the Dark Tower is really to end here on Jericho Hill, betrayed by one of their own and then overwhelmed by this barbaric remnant of John Farson's army, then let it end splendidly. Aye, he shouts, I very well, ye of the castle to me, gunslingers to me, to me, I say. As for gunslingers, Roland, Cuthbert says, I am here, and we are the last. Cuthbert, I'm sorry, Roland first looks at him, then embraces him under that hideous sky. He can feel Cuthbert's burning body, its suicidal trembling thinness, and yet he's still laughing, Bert is still laughing. All right, Roland says hoarsely, looking around at his few remaining men. We are going into them, and we will accept no quarter. Nope, no quarter, absolutely none, Cuthbert says. We will not accept their surrender if offered. Under no circumstances, Cuthbert agrees, laughing harder than ever. Not even should they all 2,000 lay down their arms, then blow that effing horn. Cuthbert raises the horn to his bloody lips and blows a great blast. The final blast. For when it drops from his fingers a minute later, or perhaps it's five or ten, time has no meaning in that final battle. Roland will let it lie in the dust. In his grief and bloodlust, he will forget all about Eld's horn. And now, my friends, Heil! Heil! The last dozen cry beneath that blazing sun. It is the end of them, the end of Gilead, the end of everything, and he no longer cares. The old red fury, dry and maddening, is settling over his mind, drowning out all thought. One last time, then, he thinks. Let it be so. To me, cries Roland of Gilead, forward for the tower. The tower! Cuthbert cries out beside him, reeling. He holds Eld's horn up to the sky in one hand, his revolver in the other. No prisoners, Roland screams. No prisoners! They rush forward and, dra and down against Grissom's blue-faced horde, he and Cuthbert in the lead, and as they pass the first of the great gray-black faces leaning in the high grass, spears and bolts and bullets flying all around them, the chimes begin. It is a melody far beyond beautiful. It threatens to tear him to pieces with its stark loveliness. Not now, he thinks. Ah, God's not now. Let me finish it. Let me finish it with my friend at my side and have peace at last. Please. He reaches for Cuthbert's hand. For one moment, he feels the touch of his friend's blood-sticky fingers there on Jericho Hill where his brave and laughing existence was snuffed out. And then the fingers touching his are gone. Or rather, his have melted clean through Bert's. He is falling. He is falling. The world is darkening. He is falling. The chimes are playing. The common are playing. And he is falling. Jericho Hill is gone. Eld's horn is gone. There's darkness and red letters in the darkness. Some are great letters, enough so he can read what they say. So that's it. That's it for Cuthbert, guys. And that's it of the of Roland's tales in, in that particular time period. And we're going to get a little bit more in the, in the days before the fall of Gilead and the gunslinger's last stand on Jericho Hill in the win through the keyhole story. But 
man, I just would have loved to have gotten a chronicle of just a book detailing that that final battle, that that final last stand, and you know who betrayed them, how did that go down, um, you know how did Elaine die, you know just if we were to get more, you know I I guess I really wouldn't complain. All right, guys, let's talk about Ka-Tet. It's no coincidence that the Battle of Jericho Hill is placed in this book because Jericho Hill was the site of the death of one Ka-Tet and Calabrin Sturgis is the site of the death of the other. Yeah, they pick up Callahan, but from here on out, their force is broken. Roland begins keeping secrets about Susanna, about meeting Henchik. Jake holds secrets about the rest, about Benny's dad and Andy. Both Jake and Roland have a palaver about Susanna and come up with a secretive plan without Eddie knowing. Deep understanding used to pass among them, but as the bonds fall, there's misinterpretation, frustration, and anger. And then 19. Let's talk about 19. I hate it. I hate 19. I am not a big fan of numerology or anytime numbers play into a narrative. I mean, the numbers on Lost were my least favorite plot point. I hate the movie, number 23. I don't like the importance that 19 has. And it's really annoying the way they keep pointing it out. Especially Eddie. He just won't stop. He's the worst. You know, at one point he's like, That's so 19, man. Welcome to the land of 19, where it's 19 o'clock all the 19 time. Like, it's just it's just annoying. It's just, it to me, I never got behind it. Sorry, guys. I know that out there it's kind of like a, a sigil that will will shine to each other to, to kind of just show our true Stephen King fandom, but I could never really get behind it. Sorry if that uh, makes me lose some some Stephen King points there, but I need to be honest. All right, guys. Stephen Kingisms. It's time for Stephen Kingisms. Bernie Wrightson drawing wolves. That's the first one. So I was ecstatic when I first heard that Bernie Wrightson was illustrating this because it's Bernie freaking Wrightson. As I mentioned in my review of Cycle of the Werewolf, I encourage you to research his Frankenstein adaptation. The artwork in that is so detailed and rich and beautiful. For all intentions, this marks the third collaboration with King. The first having been the Cycle of the Werewolf and the second being the re-release of The Stand. Now, both novels included illustrations of wolves, as The Stand has a picture of the kid being hunted by the wolves sent by Randall Flagg. Now, this marks the third time he's been tasked with drawing wolves for Stephen King. Twinners, doubling and mirroring. From the prologue of this novel, King presents us with the concept of twins, with Tia and Tian. Twins run in the family of Calabrin Sturges and have a dark relationship with the wolves. And if the novel itself feels familiar, it's intentional on King's part. The previous novel, Wizard in Glass, examined Roland as a youth arriving to a far-off land with its own customs, and thousands of years later, in the pages of Wolves of the Kala, he does the same with his new quartet. Both villages have entered into packs with the Crimson King, made heast through their agreement with John Farson, and Kala Bryn Sturges through Andy and the Wolves of the Thunderclap. When the Cotet first ride into Calabrin Sturges, it's designed to mirror Susan's final ride through Mayhees and functions as an inverse. One is an entrance and one is an exit. There's a duplicitous robot, which we've seen before with Shardik and Blaine. And when the Root children come back from the Thunderclap, they come back on a train. All of these uh, similarities are, are referenced by the Cotet themselves. Um... 
So Eddie was right about that too, Roland thought. He hadn't even seen Calabrin Sturgis yet, and it already reminded him of Mehis. In some ways, that seemed perfectly reasonable. Farming and ranching towns the world over bore similarities to each other, but in some other ways it was disturbing, disturbing as hell. The sombrero Slightman had been wearing, for instance. Was it possible that here, thousands of miles from Mehis, the men should wear similar hats? He supposed it might be. But was it likely that Slightman's sombrero should remind Roland so strongly of the one worn by Miguel, the old mozo at seafront in Mejis all those years before, or was that only his imagination? Furthermore, King continues to establish that the tower and the rose are twinners of each other. More so than, than twinners that King goes so far as to state that they're actually the same. In previous episodes, I've also discussed how Eddie is the reincarnation of Cuthbert, which is discussed far more explicitly here on um, page 203. As they set off, Eddie realized what all of this reminded him of. Stories he had heard of reincarnation. He had tried to shake the idea off, to reclaim the practical, tough-minded Brooklyn boy who had grown up in Henry Dean's shadow and wasn't quite able to do it. The thought of recreation, reincarnation might have been less unsettling if it had come to him head-on, but it didn't. What he thought was that he couldn't be from Roland's line, simply couldn't, not unless Arthur Eld had at some point stopped by Co-op City, that was, like maybe for a Red Hot and a piece of Dolly, Dolly Lundgren's fried dough. Stupid to project such an idea from the ability to ride an obvious docile horse without lessons. Yet the idea came back at odd moments through the day and had followed him down into sleep at night. The Eld, the line of Eld. Also, the twinning that we've uh, come to recognize from the talisman shows up a bit more prominently here through the individuals in either world are separated by years. Wayne Overholster and Benny Sleitman are authors in this world, possibly telling the stories they dream about through the eyes of their Kala twinners. Number three is the alpha male. Wayne Overholster is the latest in a long line of insufferable alpha male characters whose actions either directly interfere with the solution to the conflict or whose very nature makes it difficult for our heroes to overcome the odds. Other alpha male characters include Tom Rogan, Buster Keaton, Robbie Beals, and others. Number four is the cycle of evil. The wolves come to the Kala once every 20 years or so, but this isn't the first time we've seen a cycle of evil in a Stephen King work, the most famous having been the cycle of the spider in the pages of It, as it will re return every 28 years. Ardelia Lortz in The Library Policeman is another example. Dear Heart. Roland calls Susanna Dear Heart, his most often, term, often used term of affection between characters. Number six is Tolkien. King loves his Tolkien, as we all know, and we have a character in this novel named Took. More importantly, the Come Kamala dance and sing-along is something right out of a Tolkien novel. Number seven is Vampires. Since Salem's Lot, King has loved writing vampires. We have seen vampires in Little Sisters of Illuria. Tack was a sort of vampire in The Regulators. We've seen uh, vampires in The One for the Road, Popsy, and Nightflyer. Here, he finally provides a set of rules for the vampires and why there are different sorts. This, of course, is Callahan's classification of the Type 1, Type 2, and Type 3 vampires. Number eight is Secret Highways. In The Talisman, Jack Sawyer discovered the real America as well as a parallel one called the Territories, and Callahan's traveling of Secret Highways feels very reminiscent of traveling Jack's journey. 
King writes, there are secret highways in America, highways in hiding. This place stands at one of the entrance ramps leading into that network of dark side roads and Callahan senses it. It's in the way the Dixie cups and crumpled cigarette packs blow across the tarmac in the pre-dawn wind. It whispers from the sign on the gas pumps, the one that says pay for gas in advance after sundown. It's in the teenage boy across the street, sitting on the porch stoop at 4.30 in the morning with his head in his arms, a silent essay in pain. The secret windows are close, and they whisper to him. Canterbury Tales, I knew I was going to get to it. So, like I had said, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why I haven't talked about this before. I should have talked about this before. So, this began as far back in The Gunslinger. Roland's tale of Tull to the man um, Brown was the first of many stories that will be told throughout the series, which is inspired by Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. The inclusion of Father Callahan's story, whose chapter titles are named The Priest Tale, is a direct homage to the classic. Number 10 is villains grabbing a character by the crotch. Um, this is something that we have seen time and time again in Stephen King works. Number 11 is alcohol and AA. So dependency has long been a, a plot point and thematic plot point for Stephen King's characters that we've seen time and time again. Number 12 is dust bunnies. When Callahan is in the jail cell, underneath his bed, he sees dust bunnies, which always makes me think of Dolores Claiborne. Number 13, 112263. Callahan thinks about taking Black 13 and using it to travel to Dallas on 112263. Callahan might not do this, but King will one day write of another time traveler who will. Number 14 is abortion. Callahan refuses to help Roland abort the baby, and the conversation surrounding it is very reminiscent of the conversations had in Insomnia. Number 15 is the Pied Piper. Andy is the Pied Piper of the Kala, but this is the first time we've seen a Pied Piper character, the first having been Andre Linoge in the Storm of the Century. And then there's the number 7. Roland's band of fighters to stand against the wolves is numbered at 7. Roland thinks it's a good number, a number of power, and the losers in Derry would agree. Now, guys, it is time for the Easter eggs, the first of which is the op. Apoponics. Apoponics? Apoponics. Apoponics. Yeah, the Apoponics feather. The feather used at the meeting in the beginning of the novel is from the same bird as the one from Black House. Two, Inside View. Eddie makes a reference to reading Inside View, and Inside View uh, is a tabloid that. Um, we have seen before in the pages of Stephen King's works, one of the tabloid reporters, Richard Dees, is a character that we first saw in The Dead Zone and in the short story, The Night Flyer, in the pages of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Number three, when they're visiting the Rose, Jake sees a number of events that have taken place and some that would never take place. One thing that he sees is four men rescuing a little boy from a monster who seemed to consist of a single eye. This is a scene that you can read about in the pages of the Black House when Jack Sawyer enters N-World to rescue Tyler Marshall from the clutches of Lord Malshan, the Crimson King's right-hand man. Number four, Eddie thinks about childhood and remembers, I don't shut up, I grow up, and when I look at you, I throw up, which is a very famous line from The Body. Number five is Los Zapatos. Callahan mentions that he has gone toe-dash to Los Zapatos, Mexico, which is where Mark and um, 
Ben Mears from Salem's Lot have holed up after the events of the novel. He appears at the funeral of Ben Mears with Mark giving the eulogy. I'd say that the boy having allowed the opportunity to grow up and mourn the father is a purposeful inversion of what we get with Jake and Roland. Number six is Auras. So with Father Callahan being able to see Auras, that means that he has bumped up another level of the tower. The first time our characters... Um, seeing auras taking place was in the pages of insomnia number seven low men in yellow coats once callahan starts killing the type three vampires the low men aka the cantoy start hunting him their hunting tactics would appear very familiar to ted brodigan from the story low men in yellow coats as they start hanging up lost pet posters and drawing circles and stars around spray painted messages and lastly, the breakers, um, the, the fact that the twins are taken to the thunderclap for to feed the breakers. This is building on what King began in the pages of Low Men in Yellow Coats and continued with uh, the Black House very, very recently. So it's all coming together, guys. By the time you finish this novel, it's a great conclusion. You can't wait to get to Song of Susanna, but at the same time, you kind of don't want to get to Song of Susanna because then you're really almost there at the end. So um, my thoughts on this book, I really enjoy uh, Wolves of the Kala. I think that the, the, the final battle is anticlimactic, um, but really what he's doing, he's, he's just setting the stage for, for events yet to come. I think that this could have been fine-tuned. I think that it could have stood on its own a little bit more, but all in all... Um, it's definitely a novel that, that I enjoy reading. It's got a lot. It's got just a lot of crazy imagery. You have Black 13, like I've talked about ad nauseum at this point. You, you have the, the Doctor Doom uh, lightsaber wielding Harry Potter throwing robots that ride out of the, the, the black wall of the Thunderclap. You have an evil C-3PO. You have um, the, the characters of the Drawing of the Three and the Wastelands interacting. You have the return of a fallen priest um, fighting vampires across parallel Americas. There's a lot going on. You have one of our Kotet members who is pregnant and possessed by a strange personality um, that forces her to, to eat frogs and rats. And it's just it's great it's just it's such an enjoyable read i really enjoyed going back um and experiencing the the wolves of the kala okay guys so with that said next episode will be the song of Susanna. so may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next episode where m-o-o-n spells stephen kingcast